Oh, no. Right. If I told them once, I told them a hundred times to put spinal tap first and puppet show last. It's a morale builder, isn't it? As always, I'm Lindsay Wilkins, and today we are going to be talking the rock and roll lifestyle, taking it up to 11. D- don't even look at it. Uh, it's a double, <laughs> yeah, but I'm going to be quoting uh, this movie a lot. It's a double of Rob Reiner's Spinal, this is Spinal Tap, and Milos Forman's Amadeus, Rock Me Amadeus. Um, and here with me uh, is our wonderful film feast regular uh, and a great, uh, well, I consider him a friend. It is Ken Walker. Hey, how's it going? I'm doing really well, Lindsay, and I appreciate you having me on. Uh, having me on for these movies. No, thank you. We seem to be going through your top five favorite list you did on Film Feast quite a while ago. I think um, it's one of mm-hmm. your first episodes. Yeah, you did the Batman list, and then um, you did each of your favorites uh, and the Bravo scariest moments. Um, Matt's favorite movie, no matter what he says, is the <laughs> Bravo Hundred Scariest Moments. Um, oh yeah. But I do remember you did this top five and we have done two of, this is the second one we've done. Um, well, I think, I think when I recorded that with Matt, I think, uh, at the time I considered Edward Scissorhands my number five. And since then I've replaced that with Amadeus. Ah, yes. Um, Amadeus, really solid top five, same with Edward Scissorhands, but Amadeus is, Mm -hmm. um, well we'll talk about it it's an incredible I forgot I keep forgetting how incredible this movie is um but yeah because we've also done um the uh Harvey uh, as well so this is your number one which is I a delightful movie and everyone should watch Harvey and listen to that episode if you haven't um before um but yeah no we are going to be talking um We'll get into it, but this double was such an amazing rock and roll double and an amazing way of doing a biopic without doing a biopic, which I think is probably the best, which is what I love about each of these movies. Um, Mm -hmm. And so we might as well get into it. We're sitting in a theater. Ken, what is going to be your first trailer for Spinal Tap? Uh, For This is Spinal Tap, my first trailer I I would want to play is uh, The Blair Witch Project. Heavy metal's deep. You can get stuff out of it. My name is Marty DeBergi. I'm a filmmaker. One man dares to probe the hidden secrets. I was just pointing at it. I... Well, don't point even. You don't it even can't... point. No, it can't be played. Never. I mean, can I look at it? One man dares to hear the shocking answers. It's tragic, really. He exploded on stage. To questions like, 
Is the world really ready for Spinal Tap? You put a greased, naked woman yes. on all fours yes. with a dog collar with around dog her collar. neck and a, leash, and a leash and pushing a black glove in her face to sniff it. You don't find that offensive? No, you don't, don't find that sexist? Yes, well, you should Listen have seen the cover they wanted to do. After years of vicious gossip, the official explanation was he choked on vomit. Well, I can't yes. prove whose vomit it was. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so let trailers, me... and I forgot, and I'm so glad you picked this. <laughs> yes. So obviously, the connection here is it's the it's the mockumentary, the fake documentary. Uh, Lindsay, the question I want to ask you is, what are your feelings on the Blair Witch Project as a whole? I like it. I've gone through up and down on this. Um, when it first came out, I kind of fell for the whole campaign of it all. It was 99. Oh, yeah. I was a teenager. I kind of believed that these weren't actors and this was a half believed that this might have been a real thing. Um, well, I believe on, on IMDb they had, because the actors go by their real names, and I believe at the time on IMDb they put like... Uh, like under their names like location unknown like we don't know where they are yes. obviously as part of the gimmick mm. as part of the gimmick and they have popped up in other things but I'm, I'm always going to know them as that and this was um I think this I even saw uh Blair Witch before I saw Spinal Tap this was much more of a university movie for me we'll get into oh, yeah. how shaken how upset I was that Spinal Tap was not a quote-unquote real band um, oh, yeah. they kind of are but we'll get into it yeah but, they've um, done the... they have an album that's oh. toured <laughs> i'm sorry go on i'm sorry um but yeah no i but i've generally grown to love um blair witch um as we have gone on and as the time has gone on i've gone to learn to appreciate it how do you feel about blair, blair witch so matt and i are sort of in agreement on this because when i had the movie on dvd i you know, watch, they had like an additional like fake documentary attached talking to, you know, all their loved ones and her film professor and all that. Yeah. And they sort of went more into the lore about Rustin Parr and Elliot mm. Edward. And Matt and I both sort of feel this way. I like everything about the movie and everything around it more than I like the movie itself. That makes sense. Yes. You know, but like for for me, for my found footage horror that I, that I really like is the first couple paranormal activities which is a bit cheaper because, you know, you see the stuff happen, whereas the spooky stuff that you see in Blair Witches, they wake up and they've got those, you know, stick figures lined up or the rocks lined up, which is a much more mature scare, I think. Mm. But I don't know. I just, I guess I like the cheap thrills of like seeing things move around the room. No, well, I, I get that because I posted, well, it was Friday, which is it's just after the Friday the 13th and I posted my favorite Friday the 13th movies on Twitter and never before have I gotten more, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed replies from people. <laughs> I don't tend to like the good ones, I tend to like the schlocky ones, which is, yeah, exactly the sort of same thing you're talking about is that sometimes you just like the more shockier version of a thing and that is definitely paranormal activity. Um, I've only seen the first first one. But that kind of gives you that more funhouse, oh, I'm being scared kind of thing where there's mm -hmm. Blair Witch. It really does capture that feeling really well of, oh, no, we're stuck in the woods and we can't get out. It's more the feeling. It's not so much the witch. It's the more we don't know where we are, um, mm -hmm. which is a, for me, a more terrifying feeling than watching Paranormal Activity 
even though that movie makes me jump 15 times because it's just really good right. jump scares. But um, <laughs> I'd like almost fell on the floor. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think Blair Witch is definitely the more mature and the more um, scares. And it's got that really uncomfortable mm-hmm. feeling. Like you believe that these kids are screaming at each other, that they're only holding, they're not holding the camera properly because they, um, they're scared. Um, but right. Like that scene where uh, they're running out of the tent and you hear Heather screaming, oh my God, what is that? Yes. She never turns the camera around to see what it is, unlike in Cloverfield where he's always getting a perfect glimpse of the monster. I mean, yeah, I mean, that. Uh, I can't remember who the guy behind the camera is, but it is, yeah, he's got like perfect DP shots of everything that you're seeing um, with his blade, mm-hmm. which they are purposely weird angles. You're only seeing half a thing. You're only, you're looking in the other, other direction where they're looking in, in the direction because- they are absolutely terrified. Um, they know they're going to run out of food, water. They don't know where they are. There's no help. There's nothing. Um, mm-hmm. And that is kind of why I have grown more to love it. But I can understand yeah. when um, you're wanting to, you're in a certain mood. You don't always want the Blair Witch mood. You want the um, the the paranormal activity mood. So that that is completely mm-hmm. understandable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what's your first trailer for it? Uh, my first trailer for, okay, I am going to, well, okay, mine, mine isn't as, as, as good as yours. Well, I'm Wayne's World, uh, 1992, directed by Belena, uh, Penelope Spheris. Broadcast history is about to be made. Extreme I want you to find out who these guys are and where they do their show. What is this? Mr. Vanderhoff, this is your audience. It's two chimps on a Davenport in a basement. Here I am with the contract for $5,000. Excuse me? Now they're on their way. No way. Way. To fade. Will you still love me when I'm in my carbohydrate sequin jumpsuit? Young girls in white cotton panties, bloated, purple, dead on a toilet face. To fortune. Contractor knows. I will not bow to any sponsor. To babe heaven. Fantastic. It's it's Wayne's World. What can you say? Um, party on. Excellent. Huh. Um, Another. I, I actually. So the way you quote Spinal Tap, I quote Wayne's World. It, I actually rewatched it not too long ago. So oh, it's really yeah. cool that you're bringing it up. Oh, that is really really cool. Um, I tend to quote Wayne's World too more often. Um, yeah, the oh, yeah. be they. It's Heather be their name. Abraham Abraham Lincoln. Um, we're gonna. Uh, yes. Cross the T's and dot the I's. Um, no, yes. which I think Wayne's World is a better movie than two, but I've just watched two so many times that it's getting ridiculous. But I think for Spinal yeah. Tap, you have to go for the original. Um, my my, uh, my my favorite quote from Wayne's World, if you don't mind, uh, yeah. the, uh, from the first one, I love, um, you know, when the girlfriend gives him a gun rack, he's like, I don't even own a gun, let alone <laughs> many guns that would necessitate an entire rack. Um, and the other is... Uh, when Garth uh, is talking to Benjamin's friend and he's just like, if Benjamin were an ice cream flavor, he'd be pralines and dick. <laughs> oh my God, I forgot about that line. No, I love was the Ed O'Neill. <laughs> it's like, they always come to me. How do they find me? Um, line, I'm, I'm between that one, but Ed O'Neill's bit to camera is, is, um, is genius. And uh, yeah, it's, I think I sometimes mix uh, one and two up, but it is, one is so perfect. I mean, I just remember being at sleepovers, watching this and recreating the Bohemian Rhapsody bit in the car. Oh, um, of course. Yeah, because it's it's iconic. 
Yeah. And uh, it's actually great, great, one great of the low, yeah, and it's one of the low key great uh, metal movies, uh, Wayne's World, like uh, Spinal Tap. Uh, what is going to be your second trailer? Mm-hmm. So for my second trailer, a movie that came out last year on Netflix, <clears throat> excuse me, is a. Uh, Starring uh, Eric Andre, Lil Rel Howery, and uh, Tiffany Haddish, Bad Trip. Mm. Can you just hit that on switch for me? No, 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 no. Oh, oh my God, turn it off. Oh, I'm going to get fired again. Oh, shimmy your jacket. Jacket, 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 jacket. Why, why, why? You seen these dudes right here? They stole my car. The police are right there, though. They're not helping at all. You know what? Sometimes you just got to. Holy shit. I'm sinking. Go get some butter. Shit. Ah. It's finally time for that road trip. I'm talking. Man, why? Sweet. Shouldn't have taken my sister's car, man. She's crazy. He will kill us. Keep your mouth shut. Snitches get stitches. Yes. <laughs> so so you got a chance to watch this then i watched parts of it yes and it was actually way funnier than i thought it was going to be because this kind of yeah. um movie can make me very uncomfortable that because it's very awkward mm-hmm. humor but i was giggling <laughs> yeah well to me this is like the opposite of a mockumentary because it's actually taking real people in real life but making yeah. like a narrative story out of it it does yes it's not like um oh shoot what's his name uh, my wife Oh, Borat. Borat. When he's making you feel yes. so, I mean, yes, I get the humor that people find this funny. I just get very uncomfortable that I want to hide. Um, but at least with Bad Trip, it's, yeah, there is a narrative and you are, it is very funny. <laughs> yeah. I think what I like more about movies like Bad Trip and um, sort of like what the Impractical Jokers do, what I like more about that is they don't make the people who don't know what's going on, they're not, they're never the butt of the joke. They're yeah. making themselves the butt of the joke. Mm. Exactly. So. You know, I mean, and yeah, it's it's gruesome comedy. Uh, there's a particular scene in the zoo that's very rough, but it's it's just glorious silliness. Matt actually introduced me to this movie. Oh, that does not surprise me because uh, Matt does yeah. love a um, a jackass, which is, does the same thing. It is very much mm-hmm. taking themselves as the butt of the joke, not people who don't always know they're involved in something. Um, yes, exactly. So yeah, that they do the same same thing, and I do need to actually watch jackass forever because i promised my partner that we would so um (laughs) something i need to introduce myself into more because i think i'm now ready for this and will not be completely grossed out um because unfortunately the first jackass episode i saw was the vomit episode Mm -hmm. not even one of the main guys the main guys would not do this is when a guy makes an omelet vomits it up and then eats it again it's the most disgusting thing you've ever seen and i was just like why why would you do this but no bad trip is i prefer the Great trailer. I'm, I'm, I'm and, sorry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, as far as the jackass stuff, I much prefer their, like, daredevilish stuff more than the gross-out stuff. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, me, yeah I think I would as well. Um, I was watching the trailer in the movie that I... I think it was a bull. Someone got knocked in the bulls, and then, of course, I had to start laughing because right. when is that not funny? Um, I mean, it's never going to be not funny. No, exactly. Um, but I do like about Bad Trip does have a very spinal tap feel to it. Um, even mm-hmm. though because they are improvising but they do have real people but you can kind of tell us that it's a very similar kind of humor and the way that they generally love what they're doing and they just kind of yeah it's it's a it's a it's a perfect perfect trailer dun, 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 what am I actually you know what my final trailer I am going to go for 
another comedy that kind of feel well it's got documentary-ish moments because it's 24 hour party people from 2002 directed by michael winterbottom june the 4th sex pistols play manchester for the very first time there are only 42 people in the audience inspired they will go out and perform wondrous deeds for instance behind me a stiff kittens later to become joy division finally to become new order that's john the postman he's a postman. Have you heard of the Factory Records? My label. Joy Division. New Order. Happy Mondays. We are an experiment in human nature. What kind of music you got me bringing in? Sort of new wave. Kind of indie. Indian? It's a pity you didn't sign the Smiths. I've just seen God. What do you look like? Look like me. This is a movie that's focusing on factory records in Manchester in the uh, 70s to early 90s, focusing on a guy called Tony Wilson, um, played by uh, Steve Coogan. And this is the guy who, um, that Manchester scene in the 70s and 80s, Joy Division, of course, um, mm-hmm. Happy Mondays. I think even the Smiths was a little bit involved. He was the guy who put on one of the first. Okay. Um, Six Pistol Concerts, that famous one where only 12 people turned up and they all became musicians, um, that kind of legend. <clears throat> um, okay. This is a guy who's a Stone Roses. This is this very Manchester kind of sound. And it does a lot of it. It is half improvised, half not, but it's definitely got some improv in there. And it is just this kind of celebration of this very specific music scene, just like Spinal Tap is such a celebration of uh, hair metal. Or uh, not heavy yes. metal, not even no. It's before hair metal. It's that kind of Led Zeppelin heavy metal, like early heavy metal. Um, yeah, well, and their song "Give Me Some Money" is clearly you know early Beatles. Exactly, and there's a few when they're doing their flower power songs and all that. But we'll get into how I love the, the show and the transaction tra- trends, um, how the move bat- developed through the years. It is such my favorite moments yeah. in this movie. Um, and 24 hour p- party people like um, absolutely kind of have that flavor. It's like you know we just. We this music's great. We're gonna celebrate it. We're gonna make fun of it gently, but we, you know it's done with love. And of course, this is yes. this is Spinal Tap all over. So we might as well yes. smell the glove and get into this is Spinal Tap. Heavy metal's deep. You can get stuff out of it. My name is Marty DeBergi. I'm a filmmaker. One man dares to probe the hidden secrets. I was just pointing at it. I... Well, don't point even. You don't even point. point. No, it can't be played. Never. I mean, can I look at it? No. One man dares to hear the shocking answers. It's tragic, really. He exploded on stage. To questions like, is the world really ready for spinal tap? You put a greased, naked woman yes. on all fours yes. with a dog collar with around dog her collar. neck and a leash. And a leash. And pushing a black glove in her face to sniff it. You don't find that offensive? No, you don't, I don't find that sexist? Well, you should Listen have seen the cover they wanted to do. After years of vicious gossip. The official explanation was he choked on vomit. Well, I can't prove whose vomit it was. Now, I've already sort of said when I sort of first saw this movie, when did you come across this movie for the first time? Uh, This was one, like, I first heard of a few years ago. I can't remember uh, where I really first, (laughs) uh, excuse me, uh, heard of it. Mm. But I remember I just came across it and... uh, 
it was just sort of like, I think it may have been around the time either Borat or Bruno came out. And I sort of liked the idea of like a fake documentary. And that's sort of how I came across it. Mm -hmm. And I have not watched it since until today. <laughs> like I've always known about it. Yeah. But yeah, I actually rewatched it for the first time for the first time since then today. Yeah. And my God, did it hold up. I was actually, I, I know this movie holds up, but I was kind of surprised on how much of a technical level this movie holds up. Um, I always knew of the band first. Uh, I think my brother even mm -hmm. had one of his albums. I thought they were just a legitimate band. They were on The Simpsons, not clicking that Harry Scherer is many of the voices on The Simpsons. Of course, one yeah. day they would have a spinal tap moment. Well, it seems some silly twit did not get a big enough oxygen pump, but that's supposed to be a devil. Filled up with air, it's very evil and impressive. We salute you, our half-inflated Dark Lord. Whoa. The joke is, is that um, the inflatable Satan coming down, and which goes back yeah. to the Stonehenge, and um, them having to write the name of where they are on, on the back of the guitar. Um, mm -hmm. And so I always knew about them, but then I remember in the early 2000s when videotapes would just sort of be passed around and like Eddie Murphy's Raw, um, there was like a few Peter Jackson early ones and the other one was always This Is Final Tap. And when you sat down and watched it for the first time, I had, by this time I had seen um, Mighty Wind and Best in Show. So I didn't actually click that these were the same guys or this was the same kind of whatever. There's even a joke uh -huh. in Best in Show where they actually reference Spinal Tap of what they did to the hotel. hotel. <laughs> um, and it is, and then sort of, sort of watching it, every it's one of those moments when everything you think you know about something forms into place and you're like, oh, this is where all this is frigging from. Um, it's this movie. And it was just kind of, and I've watched it every three years um i think i mentioned off mic this is one of the most quoted movies in the house um every single yes. time someone doesn't want to do something the next line is a technical question are we doing stonehenge tomorrow night um <laughs> <laughs> um and it is but watching it this time around i was kind of marveling at how well this movie is put together um that really, really surprised me because all I remember is the quotes. I mean, this is one of the quote of, most quotable movies of all time. Yes. I mean, this well, is also where one of my yeah your oh, your favorite. Yeah, what is your one say? one of my favorite quotes? Um, so when we were uh, um, I think yeah, I mentioned to you off air that uh, I recently moved and we actually painted a lot of the rooms in the house. And yeah. when we were looking at paint, I did see that you could get like black paint. I'm like, I couldn't imagine like painting room black. And I just thought. You know, the question is, how much more black could this be? And the answer is none, none more. <laughs> yes. So good. It is so, so good. Because uh, reading about this movie, what you hear from, because this is very much, uh, Spinal Tap is very much based on uh, mostly Led Zeppelin, especially their history, yes. how they formed, um, and a little bit of um, Black Sabbath, a little bit of, you know, um, Iron Maiden, there's little bits and pieces sort of everywhere. But what I kind of reading about it is um, most musicians find this very realistic. It's not like, especially when they're touring, because um, mm -hmm. this is a story of a band on the road. It's not, yes. you do get the sort of sense of how they can, you do get the history of the band, um, especially their drummers. Uh, one died in a, what is it, a freak um, gardening accident, and then the other one swallowing someone else's vomit. <laughs> oh my god! And that's and that's another great moment is when 
uh, Rob Reiner as the director is interviewing the one drummer in the bathtub. And he's just like, well, you know, just by the law of probability, I figured this can't happen again. <laughs> and you find out he does die. So I can't remember how yes. he dies, but he does. Which, was he the one that just exploded on yes, stage? Yes, he exploded on stage <laughs> in the last book. Yes. So when you see them in Japan, they've got a completely new drama. Yes. Um, oh. Yeah, it's... But um, yeah, so and they find it sort of realistic in terms of the fact that people are constantly leaving the band and coming in. The fact that when they get lost going to the stage, rock and roll, yes. um, yeah. that apparently is well, very you, realistic. <laughs> yeah, well, and you know, in talking about how you know bands often view this as realistic, it feels very real. Like I know it's like scripted and everything, but just watching it, it it just feels like real interactions. So. Being able to do that, but also like hit all the laughs is really something I think. It really is, especially um, the live stuff is like when Harry Shearer as Derek Small's greatest bassist name of all time um, <laughs> is stuck in that pod and he's still playing the bass, but trying to get out at the same yeah. time. And the guy's got the, got the blowtorch behind him trying to get him out. Or when yep. um, uh, Christopher Guest as um, Nigel Tuffman kind of bends backwards so much when he's doing a guitar riff but then he can't get back up and again that same roadie has to come and kind of try and lift him up um yep. or even um Stonehenge <laughs> um which I still die laughing every single time I said that a whole sequence from when they're talking about it to the fallout I yeah I, I die every single time Oh, when um, it's just like coming down on stage and they're expecting it to be like this big imposing thing their face but the, the, the line um our stonehenge was in fear of being crushed by a dwarf is okay yeah. this has some problematic lines in it and that one is one of them mm -hmm. but it's still one of the funniest lines just because you've seen what happened i don't know it's the comic timing but you're right everything about mm -hmm. this feels still very natural um these are guys who have been together for a long time in the band they've got a certain amount of fame so they are very kind of in their own bubble so reality mm -hmm. doesn't quite come into it um especially when the fact that their tour isn't going as as they planned. Um, but yeah. yeah, all that stuff feels, oh no, this would happen. And they still hit these beats of being funny. And because I was watching uh, the Blu-ray of it and even the, um, where they're going back and looking at old footage of the band when they're like in the Beatles phase or their more flower power phase, the, 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 uh, it's grainy. It's like the, you're watching old footage from a, like a TV video or old mm -hmm. film that's, you know, six millimeter or something. And it's just got that attention to detail, which I kept being surprised by because again, every single time I watch this movie, I am just going for the, those big moments. And then when you're watching actually how it's put together, paced and moves, it's really well done. Yeah. And it feels like, like there are moments I'll admit, like, I mean, I won't say I almost forgot that it wasn't, you know, real, but yeah. there were moments when like, I've just like sort of gave myself over to the world it created and it's just like, yeah, this is like a real band, right? Yeah. I mean, I thought for ages that this, well, <coughs> it is a real band because they did end up, these guys did tour, um, yes. these guys did put out an album. This became a real band. Um, and a lot of people did. In the way the Blues Brothers did. Exactly. In the exact same way the Blues Brothers did. Um, but when you watch um that kind of it's again it's actually blues brothers is a really good comparison when you're watching blues brothers you'll just give yourself over to this insane world where yes the blues brothers are a real band 
um, mm-hmm. and you believe the world completely. And the Blues Brothers is much more outlandish um, and much more heightened than um, the Spinal Tap is. And it's kind of yeah, this yeah. amazing feat um, that it does. Uh, yeah, I, I was kind of blown away all over again watching this movie, as well as um, trying to breathe from laughing so hard at certain points. <laughs> Yeah, well, like I said, this is the first time I've watched it since I was like a teenager. Yeah. And I mean, my God, did it hold up? Yeah, what was what was the joke that really kind of surprised you when you were sort of watching it, not expecting it? Like it just suddenly just popped out. You're like, oh my God, that's the funniest thing ever. Is when um when Nigel is like trying to like roll around on stage and like the stagehand has to get up and like roll him around <laughs> manually. That is, um, you could the boys t- the guys' facial expressions in this movie are gorgeous, especially when they're on stage and they're trying mm-hmm. to perform. Something's going wrong and you can kind of see them keep doing side eyes. Um, yes. But they're on stage, so they have to keep performing. Is this kind of, no, we have to let the show go on, even though Nigel Tuffman has now gotten himself in a position where he can't roll around on the floor and he has to get the stage hand. You can clearly not lift him up <laughs> to yeah. do anything. <laughs> yes. Do you actually have a favourite member of the group? Oh, Derek Smalls. <laughs> I don't oh, know. Okay. Usually I would have said, actually, no, I would, it was always Nigel, but I think this watch, I really did like David St. John, is it? I did write their names down. David uh, St. Hubbins, I think. David St. Hubbins, yes. There is a St. Hubbins and he's the saint of sensible shoes or whatever, something like that. that great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, so great. I, I think I'm, I'm a Nigel fan just because I yeah. feel like he's sort of like the straight man to all of this to be like, are we not acknowledging, I mean, we're head, we're the opening act for a puppet show at this point. Oh, he said it's, it's a real more it's, it's a real ego booster. It, I don't know. His right. every single time he speaks, it's funny. Like when he sort of, I mean, yes, everyone remembers the cucumber with the foil down the pants bit. Oh my god. <laughs> Cause they keep showing his pants, you see this thing down his pants, and you're like going, that doesn't look real, and you find out no, it's not. He's just <laughs> trying to advance his size. Um mm-hmm. but it's but every time he speaks, it's funny. Like when he sort of, because um, he does like, no, he, he, he died choking on, on vomit. Not his vomit, someone else's vomit. Yeah, someone else's. <laughs> or um, when he's sort of going, yes, uh, you know, uh, Nigel and David are the fire and ice of the band. And I like to think I'm in the middle. I'm the lukewarm water of it all. Um, yeah, Derek just goes <laughs> with the flow. He does, um, no matter what. Even if he's locked in a plastic pod that will not open, um, trying to play an oversized <laughs> bass. Or playing a bass that's clearly too big for him when they're doing big bottom, um, big bottom girls. Um, <laughs> oh, but I got this. We'll get, we'll get into their songs in a moment. But okay, yeah, he's it's he's really just really yeah. He is kind of and everything he does is really low key funny because you've got Nigel who's obviously going you know that speaker goes up to eleven that guitar belong to Elvis. Don't even look at it. Again, another one yeah. that gets quoted a lot um yeah and also when he says uh when he holds up the guitar he's just like i mean listen to it he's just like i, I don't hear anything oh well when it's played it sounds great <laughs> yes um and even like uh, uh michael mckean has some really sort of great lines and he's kind of i don't know i really like michael mckean's um uh, performance which i hadn't really knocked on to before but i think he's you can kind of see his frustration and especially when he's kind of realizing that he's kind of taking over the band um mm-hmm. it's it's a fascinating performance um i know i i 
I love all three of them, but those, um, yeah, but then you got the keyboardist wearing all those ridiculous costumes. Again, feels very realistic for a band of this yes. time. <laughs> yes. Um, I want to go back real quick, um, um, talking about the scene uh, where, you know, the amp goes up to 11. Yeah. Did you know if you actually go on IMDb, uh, this movie is rated out of 11? <laughs> You can't actually rate it out of 11, but like when you look at it on the screen, it's like 7.3 out of 11. Dead one, it should be higher and two, you should be able to vote for 11 out of 11. Cause- um, Agreed on both. Yeah, taking it up to 11 is now just in general conversation. That is that is a term now. And it came from uh, Christopher Guest improvising with Rob Reiner. Um, who actually yeah. Ryan is actually really funny. I love his intro. Hi, really I'm funny in this, yeah. He is again really low key funny. Um, because before this episode comes out, uh, best in, we, we did I did an episode of Best in Show, which is a movie I adore. Like again, I will mm-hmm. quote and love, and I think um, I love everyone in that movie and what it does. But when you're watching this as Spinal Tap, I'm like. Oh, because Rob Ryan is a, a bit way better director than Christopher Guest is. And I love yeah. Christopher Guest movies. But <laughs> what Rob, I mean, Rob Ryan is hilarious. Um, but with a father like Carl, if you weren't, I'd be disappointed. But he goes, I am I make commercials and then I'm making this documentary. Um, Wait, this was his film, his feature debut, wasn't it? It was, it was his feature debut. And you because I was sort of looking up, oh yeah, Rob Ryan had a real run in the 80s and 90s, and hell did he have a run? I mean. The Princess Bride. He's, he's like Richard. He's like Richard Donner in that you couldn't fit him into one genre. No, but he, then he made all the yeah. But he made really great movies. I mean, Princess Bride, Stand by Me, Misery, um, mm-hmm. A Few Good Men. Um, it's just yeah, you're just watching it going, oh, this is a guy who just made really good movies. Um, mm-hmm. He doesn't so much anymore, sadly. Um, but mm-hmm. that was a hell of a run. I mean, if you're yeah. going to use up all your juice, then that's a that's an incredible run. And this is his first. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And one of my favorites is uh, When Harry Met Sally. Mm. I forgot about When Harry Met Sally because that, that is also brilliant. He kind of, yeah, just keep jumping genres and just kept making great movies out of um, out of all of them. But yeah, he there's a technical proficiency about this movie, which I think is really great because it is actually trying to make a rock documentary while mm-hmm. saying we love this music because um, all the songs are great. Um, yes, they are. They're not dumb songs. They are actually really good songs from a band mm-hmm. that would be writing these kinds of songs. I mean, I love Big Bottoms and the lines are ridiculous. I even like Stonehenge. Um, the actual song, like nobody knows why they were there. Oh, I can't remember, but Christopher Guest's kind of like, it's, I don't know. It's, I'm, I'm trying not to be the Chris Farley show about this, but all I want to do is be the Chris Farley <laughs> show. <laughs> Um, I really like, um, I forget if this is the actual title. Again, I just watched it today for the first time in forever. But uh, the uh, Heavy Duty, the uh, like yeah. Heavy Duty takes the duty out my soul or something. Oh, yes. Yes. The lines are really, really um, like the bigger the something, the bigger the cushion from Big Bottoms. Um, mm-hmm. No, the, the songs um, are really, um, are really really just really smart and really great um yeah. yeah like tonight i'm gonna rock you uh listen to the flower people i really yeah give me some money which is their Beatles song um stonehenge it's they're all really smart songs um oh i didn't even know that what was christmas and the devil i'm gonna have to listen to that sorry i'm looking at spotify looking at the um <laughs> 
but yeah they're just they're actually really smart songs and I think because I think they're actually also written by Michael McKean and Christopher Guest as well because they're all three of them are musicians like they could pick up their instruments and play so there wasn't like um when we'll get into with um Amadeus where Tom Hulse I never can never say Hulse had to learn to play the piano forte but he could only could play the guitar but he actually had to because all the notes were correct apparently (sighs) which I'm stunned by um but these guys already knew how to play and already knew how to song and they knew how to write songs and were writing songs so it just makes everything so much more believable when you're watching it um and these are not so it gives this thing of like yes you're laughing at them but you're also kind of falling in love with them at the same time which i think is a hard trick to do in these kind of comedies Mm -hmm. yeah no i i'm trying to think of like another sort of example of that um but yeah it's, it's hard for me to like yeah, even come up with an example of like, yeah, like I'm laughing at these buffoons, but at the same time, they're so endearing to me. Yeah, I mean, even when, I can't think of another example either. There probably is, but most of the comedies I'm thinking about, I am laughing straight at them. Um, maybe something mm-hmm. like being there with the Hal Hashby movie with, um, oh my God, why can't I remember his name? Um, uh, da, da, da. Anyway, that movie, I think you are laughing at him um, as well as, kind of um being there with um peter sellers that's Mm -hmm. kind of one but that movie is a lot more sentimental and a lot more um kind of not kind but just that hal ashby kind of sentimentality that he that's the wrong word as well i I can't find the word that i want to say about hal ashby movies but there's Mm -hmm. a kind of a gentleness to them where you can't help falling in love with it where there's this is spinal tap is a lot more biting um like i do love i mean the whole yeah what could be more black than black and the answer is nothing I mean when yeah. they're talking about that album cover because they can't have what they want which is um uh smell the glove with the woman as Fran Drescher so eloquently <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but <coughs> a girl um with a color um the dog color being killed and someone forcing a glove into her face and it's called but it's called smell the glove and it's just like Oh, you should have seen what they actually wanted. Um, right. Oh, and it's um, uh, well, you know, guys, they think it's sort of sexist. Well, what's wrong with being sexy? See. <laughs> <laughs> and also later on, when they found out the other guy's album cover was like way worse, but he was the one being sort of demoralized. Then they're like, oh, see, so that was okay. Yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. It's um, it's kind of amazing. Again, it kind of captures that. These guys are in a bubble. They don't necessarily think what other people are going to, they don't even know what other people are going to think of them. They just think they're going to get everything that the band added on the plate. And so when they come in this tour and realize, I mean, my, one of my favorite lines from this watch is actually from, um, uh, I think it's Tony Hedra who plays um, their um, manager, Ian Faith. Um, Because there's a running joke that becomes more and more prevalent as the movie goes on is that gigs are being canceled. And of course, yeah. oh, the one in Boston, the, the gig in Boston canceled, but it's fine. That's not a big college town anyway. Um, is one of my favorite lines from the movie. Because <laughs> it's such a toss-off line that I think I've missed it before. Like it's not like right. there's not like a boom full stop to there's it. There's a lot of those lines, like it's just sort of like thrown in the mix of like long dialogue that you would miss it ordinarily. Yeah, but it's so goddamn clever. And so, and then um I loved his performance because he's obviously this manager who does who's trying to pick up after these guys who 
aren't thinking this gig, this, um, this tour isn't, I mean, they're already playing college gigs, which probably already tells you that um, they are not quite where they think they are because um, they're right. not playing the stadiums, they're playing small um, kind of college gigs. And even those mm-hmm. are getting cancelled. And just, and that joke, it's kind of amazing how it starts off small. You you could miss that line, which says so much. And then it builds and builds and builds until they're playing the Air Force with um, Fred Willard. Again, coming in and just stealing his five minutes. That man was oh, a- as he special, always does. Oh my God. I mean, him and, him and friggin' Best in Show is the most amazing thing ever. And he comes in and goes, oh, uh, my hair's a bit shaggy. Uh, hopefully they don't mix me. Uh, they don't get me confused that I'm in the back. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> please play a few slow songs so i can dance to them um it's <laughs> that man was pure gold every single second he's on screen um he is mm-hmm. he is incredible um but yeah did you have any throwaway lines that you sort of noticed but oh shit that's really funny in, in this viewing i know it was the first time in years but it would have been i'm curious how you did you notice those things or were you like oh hang on that was five because i was like wait did he just say what i think he just said like five minutes after i've been watching it yeah i just could remember like that happening but it's like i can't like list them off like off the top of my head yeah it's that kind of it is that kind of movie you will get um you will remember things like three days later and go oh shit i got that joke um like i do like the the, the puppet like puppet show and spinal tap and it's like i told them a thousand times it was meant to be spinal tap and puppet show <laughs> <laughs> um yeah this is an e- this is an ego boost uh, i don't know this movie feels so natural that you do forget that you're actually watching a fake bad but you're laughing so hard because mm-hmm. these moments are absolutely i mean it is one of the funny it is one of the greatest comedies ever made because of that reason yeah it's really like like I said just it's a really impressive balance that they landed being that it's like it feels so real and yet like it still like hits these comedy beats perfectly and yet there are those like funny like throwaway lines that you don't you don't catch at first exactly like I was watching the blu-ray and I finally noticed that in the first record party scene when they're talking about smell the glove for the first time um both Nigel and David have cold sores which I then I was sort of reading about the movie and there was this whole subplot of the opening their opening band who was a female group giving all the boys herpes um and that is what that was meant to be um but they cut that out but you still can see the cold sores and you see both and you're like hang on a second I've missed something (laughs) (laughs) never noticed that before (laughs) yeah uh oh it's um... it's just uh, so friggin good I mean yeah I mean uh, yeah, I'm literally just going through my notes and it's literally just a lot of, um, yeah, because I've always called it sniff the glove, so I have to remind myself that it's actually smell the glove. Um, mm-hmm. And the, again, how you see how the gig, the tour's not going well, because you could actually see the crowds getting smaller and smaller throughout the, the show. The first couple, they're really packed. Um, and yeah. then throughout, you just start seeing them getting um, uh, smaller and smaller. And then also they do get questions like, oh, apparently... Um, I've noticed that these crowds, there's a lot of young men. And goes, oh, yes, because, yeah, of course, they love us. We're very sexual. That reminds them that they are very sexual. Instead of, <laughs> sort of saying, oh, no, we're becoming, you know, queer icons. But it's very yeah. 1984, but I still kind of like right. that um, that ignorance of, of those guys, that that's just what they think it is. Yeah, well, it's, like, it's so great. Like, I, I love, it's one of my favorite comedic tropes is just, like, 
someone being totally oblivious. Oblivious, to, excellent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just the obliviousness of someone just like clearly not getting like what's going on. Like, um, I, trying to think of a good example like in one of my favorites is uh it, w- probably one of my favorite adult animations is king of the hill and dale gribble being like really paranoid conspiracy theorist about everything except for the clear and obvious betrayal of his wife and john redcorn going on in front of him <laughs> yes i haven't seen king of the hill in years i should go back and rewatch that Oh, it's a classic. Oh my god. I mean, yeah. after this, I ended up watching some episodes of The Simpsons just because Harry shared. Right. But um yeah, it's just kind of um amazing that these guys were just these improvers who made I, I don't even know. I think I think it was a skit that they used to do live. So that this was kind of the, oh, we should turn this into a movie. And 19, I mean, we'll be talking about two 1984 movies, and it was a hell of a year for for, for movies. I was going to ask, is that a first? Is that a first for your podcast? To do have nineteen two that the two that the two movies are came out the same year. I want to say it's happened once before, but I can't remember which one. Um, okay. But it's very very rare. Do I do two movies? But I think it also speaks to um, how good and diverse nineteen eighty four was as a movie year. That yeah. you can come out with. Um, <coughs> you can come out with this is Spinal Tap and Amadeus and you can go oh that's mm-hmm. a perfect kind of but different double because you they are very similar like I was sort of I watched uh Spinal Tap after I watched um Amadeus and when we get into Amadeus we'll definitely talk about Celery and Mozart's and their relationship more but I did sort of notice that there was that David and Nigel obviously are competitive but they are more collaborative than anyone mm-hmm. else but you can tell that Nigel is more the Mozart and David is more the Salilary, as in he's kind of more interested in the management of the band and where they're going, what are they doing, where this Nigel's just like, look at this guitar, listen to it. He's like, he's more interested in the, he's more interested in the music um, of it. But my favorite scene is when uh, they're being asked about how old they knew each other and was it their school days? And then the first song they wrote again, really good song like you yeah, can tell and these... that we just hear them doing like a little acapella version it's just like you know this is a good little tune yeah it wasn't like some i mean they could have so many times this movie could go oh we'll go for the bad song we'll go for the the fact that these guys aren't good at music no they're always been good at music it's just they their egos got in their own way i mean when nigel tuffman goes back on singing with the band at the end just because he can't stay away from it is speaks to it speaks to everything I love about this movie that isn't the jokes that is just this about this purity of no we love the music we love playing together and that even though I may may fight with them and we I may leave I'm it's not going to take away from that pure joy of just playing music yeah um also well what you were saying there about um like yeah Nigel being like more about like hey I'm just passionate about the music and Mm -hmm. Um, David is all about like the branding of the band. Yes. Um, a big issue that I understand a lot of bands have if they're trying to sort of get going is it's not a good idea to like change the band name a lot because then no one knows who they're following. And I love the very early joke where they're like, well, we were going to call ourselves the originals, but then there was a band called the originals. So we called ourselves the new originals, (laughs) but then they call themselves the regulars. So we thought, oh, well, can we go back to the originals? (laughs) 
<laughs> which yes that is a brilliant joke and actually is kind of what happened back in the 60s when they were constantly always changing their names especially in Britain um I think that's a also referring to Led Zeppelin because they used to be the yard turtles but mm. there was also I remember watching this documentary that it was about the 60s and the fact that yeah they went through so many alliterations and the fact that there was like more because there was the yard or the yardmen and the yard turtles or something someone's going to correct me about what the original name of of led zeppelin was but it took them a long time to actually settle on that name um but yeah it's actually perfect like that's the thing you don't do you do not change your name um yeah and you just keep your name and so people know who you are what you do and that kind of thing um i also like how they've been together so long that they've actually their style of music that has changed it's not just this kind of early metal of like like black sabbath or led zeppelin it's also they started in the early 60s so they were playing more beatles vibe and then the late 60s they're like listen to the flower people which mm -hmm. is actually the one ridiculous song but i love it's actually quite a good yeah, song I, <laughs> I enjoy that one too um real quick i wanna i wanna say uh you were talking about uh led zeppelin and how they changed the names a couple mm. times one of my favorite stories is actually about uh, how david bowie landed at his name and i know you're a bowie fan correct yes i am hmm. so uh do you know the story of how david bowie sort of landed on his name i can't actually no i don't actually so his real name was david jones but there was some there was some artist at the time who went by davy jones and he didn't want to get mixed up with him <laughs> so he said in an interview, so I came up with the brilliant idea of going by the name Tom Jones. <laughs> and then Tom Jones came out with it's not unusual. So then he had to like rework. He said, okay, I'll change my last name instead, go by, and somehow he landed on David Bowie. Yes. Uh, Tom Jones actually feels like a very Bowie move of what he wanted to be called. Um, yes. Just because it is based on like a 17th century novel and all that kind of thing. And that feels very Bowie. But then, of course, there was an actual man called Tom Jones, who came out with, um, you know, wouldn't it be, yeah, that, uh, him, um, the Welshman with the big voice, uh, the hairy Welshman right. with the big right. voice. Um, yes. Looking at Bowie's career, it's actually not unsimilar and kind of fits into this thing because, again, he had to change his name a couple of times and he wasn't the musical genius for his first couple of albums. That took a while for him to kind of figure out what character he was, who he was. I mean, there's a song where he's, singing with a chipmunk i have it downstairs on vinyl my, well I, I say that my partner does and he plays it constantly and it always does it because he knows it annoys me i'm like that's not bowie that's not stop it stop it play well, low don't well, play that <laughs> <laughs> i'll always say the weirdest music video i've ever seen is his music video for ashes to ashes yes <laughs> it's the most bananas music video i've ever seen in my life it's right up there with some dire straits videos it's just like what is happening um no, I I am a big fan of Bowie. And I think he does kind of fit in with the era that Spinal Tap is kind of making fun of, is in the 70s and 60s. Rock and roll was still being figured out, I think. And it wasn't exactly as yeah. codified as it was in 1984, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. where rock and roll was the standard. I think, so they're talking about a band who's kind of gone through the wars and gone through everything and now have solidified their music in this kind of brand. And this is the stuff they like singing which is very um, Queen, it's very David Bowie, it's Led Zeppelin, it's um, Black Sabbath, it's all these kind of great British bands um, that came out during that time period and really kind of defined this very specific rock and roll. But I do like yes. the fact that they kind of go through all the alliterations 
that this music style went through um because you could see it with multiple bands it's not like this is kind of the forest gump of it all this is no yeah. bands did this this is what they did um you want to hear some weird stuff go look up led zeppelin's early stuff before they were led zeppelin go listen to bowie before he did how he did uh, before he wrote low before he wrote all his kind of um ziggy stardust kind of things um you go listen to that kind of stuff it's weird it's wrong it's like who is this and it's all about these guys trying to figure out their personalities and you can kind of see it and how um how um spinal tap works until you see them at the contemporary stuff and you're like oh god it's the rolling stones when they're at the most wanky um it's Mm -hmm. um nigel wearing a kilt and he's not scottish that is something that I'm sure Keith Richards did at some point. Um, it's, oh, yeah. It's, um, they get to play these very working class boys who managed to get very wealthy by playing music and now up to this day where they are lords and they are now acting like it. And it is, um, I'm pretty sure David uh, said that mentioned that he went through a uh, spiritual Indian phase. Oh, yes, he does, because him and his girlfriend are very much yes. into that as well. So it even takes on that. It's, it's, it's. Yes. I, I love. Perfect yeah, that's going into the whole like George Harrison Eastern mysticism thing. Yes. He dragged all the Beatles along and poor Ringo's like, do we have to do this? And yeah. John and um, oh, um, the other kind of, Mike and McCartney. Paul. Yeah, we're like, are there drugs? Yes, we will be there. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, I totally forgot about that scene. Thank you for bringing that up. Because yeah, because I'm a huge Beatles fan. Oh yes, so when they, yeah. So when he brought up like getting into like the whole Eastern mysticism, I'm just like, oh, he's he's doing the George Harrison thing. Yeah, that's what kind of about the Beatles story is. It was all George kind of pushing that through. He was the one playing the sitar. He was all that kind of thing, and then everyone else kind of went along with it. And I know I've seen interviews with Ringo going, yeah, I was there. Wasn't really. <laughs> It was like him when he's talking about Sergeant Pepper. Look, I play chess and play the drums. I wasn't really that interested in what these guys would actually. You could tell he was just kind of he was the same. It was the uh, Derek Smalls of it all. He was just kind of going along going with, with the flow, going with the flow. Um, and even though However, I apparently, think, yeah, apparently sorry? Ringo was. Oh, sorry. Uh, apparently Ringo was the first one in the group to smoke pot. Because he told a story on Conan. He was like they were all in a hotel room, and apparently Bob Dylan like had was hanging out with them and arranged for a guy to bring pot and Ringo was the first one to take a hit oh that I did not okay I'm not surprised that Bob Dylan introduced them to pot um I'm surprised that it is Ringo I no I thought it would have been John for some reason going yes but um (laughs) he was probably the more good boy that turned into the more bad boy I don't know um the Beatles that's what I love about these rock and roll kind of things that this movie's riffing on is that all these guys are huge personalities have you ever read um Keith Richards uh, memoir I have not but I know some wild Keith Richards stories the casual way he talks about them is absolutely fascinating like he's like yeah I did that it was beautiful it was amazing um when he talks about his heroin habit um and the rules he had for himself it's kind of incredible that he can kind of talk about all these wild things he went through and did very um mm-hmm. offhandedly which kind of again speaks to speak to this i mean when he speaks about the whole um raid up in north of england i can't remember the, the manor house it was it was uh, there at mix i think um mm-hmm. and that he speaks it very calmly yeah this is what happened and he's like dude that's one of the most infamous raids in modern british history is because they got like friggin um the the band members from um 
you know, uh, Rolling Stones and uh, uh, the, the singer that Mick was dating at the time and all that kind of thing. And you're just, and he's like, yeah, that happened. <laughs> it's, right. It's just, it's just so matter of fact, like, like just sort of shrugs it off. He does. It's a very, and it's very entertaining because he's very, um, it's actually amazing how much of it is true. Like you can still like when you're hearing stories from like Led Zepp, you can kind of piece together the different versions of everything. Um mm-hmm. And go, okay, that might be a slight um, exaggeration. Okay, that wasn't, but okay, it was the 1970s. Um, but with the Rolling Stones, he's like, okay, Mary Faithful didn't have a Snickers bar, but everything else is true. And you're like, going, yeah. that's still a lot. <laughs> right. Well, it's like uh, like all those like Keith Richards stories, uh, I have not read, but I've also heard like if you read uh, Ozzy Osbourne's autobiography, uh, I, it, I think it's I Am Ozzy. Mm, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, Apparently, I do know the of the opening pages of the book. It's something along the lines of like first page, like they said I wouldn't leave, I wouldn't live long enough to write this memoir. Turn page. Well, I'm still alive. Turn page. So fuck them. <laughs> but you you hear these stories about what Ozzy Osbourne did throughout his life, and you do question. It's like how is this person alive? Oh, yeah, even Keith Richards talks about that because he talks about being on a list of the most likely to drop dead at any moment. And he, he right. even jokes that he goes, I've taken too much heroin. I, I'm not, that's not going to happen. I, I've pickled myself. Um, and, right. and like, yeah, you have pickled yourself. Um, it yeah, is, it's just in my system now. Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just, it's just there. It's just solidified. He's like, I'd probably die if I didn't do this stuff at this point. <laughs> that's pretty much it. Um, and this is the way he sort of talks about it. And just sort of getting into the sort of, yeah, and it, and the fact that Spinal Tap captured all this stuff perfectly. I mean, the fact that Ozzy Osbourne's still alive, I'm still looking at him going, how? I know 90% of it was probably Sharon. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think, you, I, I, just, I, I know they're divorced now, but I think they are. Um, but I think she was, she was kind of the personal relationship, again, like the girlfriend yes. in um, Spinal Tap. She was kind of the business head. She kind of knew, that, okay, you need to do this, this, and this. If you do this, you will die but I need you mm-hmm. to be on this direction here. Um, and I think he has a lot to thank for, for that, for those reasons. Um, but yeah, I just, I love how realistic this movie is. Most comedies are not this realistic and you love it for it because um, of that, but you believe this is an actual real uh, rock uh, rock documentary. Like um, yeah. the conversations it's, it's about- very- albums and parties and where they're touring and what went wrong and what yeah it's it's absolutely it's just so good yeah it is it really dances this line of you know these are buffoonish caricatures of people and yet somehow they feel so real yeah they kind of take that mythos of what you know about these great rock and roll acts (sighs) from the 70s and 80s and go well, yeah, it's like going back to Wayne's World too when they're talking to the roadie um, and he's telling that story about breaking into a sweet shop um, in Sri Lanka. Oh, I can't remember the band um, because so-and-so wanted only brown M&Ms. Um, of course, the shop owner caught me and I bit him to death with his own shoe. And he tells that story like three <laughs> times. And by the end of the movie, you're like, yes, that is what happened. Um, I wish I could remember which band thing he was talking about. But, and also, I mean, Wayne's World does the kind of the same thing is that it kind of creates, because Penelope Ferris knew so much about the punk and metal scenes because she 
just documented all of them with like the death of civilization and suburbia that she was able to take Wayne's world and do the exact same thing. It's like, yeah, I know how the middle, I know middle fandom works. So I can kind of go in there and kind of make this realistic, which was based on an SNL sketch. <laughs> yes. I do love those movies. Another movie that uh, you could sort of compare to this um, that my, uh, a friend of mine introduced me to in 2016 this movie came out did you ever see sing street i did i did i love it <laughs> yeah it's it's a and there's like really cool songs in there and it's sort of yeah about i can't remember did this take place in the 80s or is it just this kid sort of trying to revive 80s type of music it took place in the 80s it was um yeah it was um the movie was set in the 1980s when mtv was just coming up and so you've got bands mm-hmm. like Duran Duran and how the video music video is becoming as as important function of rock and roll as yes. say um live act um and that's kind of where that's set um I actually also just did an episode um for Joe Carney's first movie once which the music in that is phenomenal and that kind of oh, yeah. does this really cool trick of the movie being very rough and ready, almost handheld, and then the music kind of transport you to somewhere else. And I think Sing Streets does the same thing, um, especially yeah. when they do the amazing uh, Drive It Like You Stole It and you're in this amazing fantasy 1950s era kind mm-hmm. of thing where everything's working out. And it does manage to take you somewhere else and then manage to bring you back in the movie. And actually, that's what the gig parts doing spinal tap it does put you into a gig you are at that gig you are enjoying that gig something's going wrong at that gig but the music's great where you're still just like screaming and cheering and everything like that so um, yeah totally which i think is the mark of a good um <clears throat> movie that does with music in it if it can tr- transport you out of the movie bring you back into it it's doing its job because it's understanding what music does as well as what film does um mm-hmm. and spinal tap is that good and Absolutely. Yeah. So if you're watching it again, it is more than are we doing Spinal Tap? Are we doing Stonehenge tomorrow night? Still one of the funniest moments on film. <laughs> <laughs> Just their faces when they come out and the fact that the um uh that the smaller people uh dwarf um um are actually taller, I think is there's some well actually Amadeus is also gonna have that joke, but it's about the extravagance of it, like when bands yes have money they always get a dwarf somewhere involved in their thing and it's this brutally thing it says about extravagance um and the lack of kind of um oh i can afford a little person it's like one that's not a sentence you should be saying two they are people and performers just trick them but no it's the extravagant it's like the um i think you've got a trail coming up that's similar to something i remember for amadeus but the famous um uh queen freddie mercury story of how he used to throw parties and he had dwarfs with trays of cocaine on their heads. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. I'm, I'm trying to remember what's that movie? Oh, it's one of it, it's a movie about making movies. It's it's the one where like Steve Steve Buscemi is playing a, living, a movie director. A living on oblivion. And um it is oh, Peter Dinklage. Sh- Peter Dinklage giving that amazing speech of why do you yeah. have to use a dwarf when you're doing this? Can't you just have him as a character? No, you have to have them in a fantasy scene to make it weird. Yeah, it's just like, so people are yeah. like, whoa, what the fuck? This scene's got a dwarf in it. This has to be a dream sequence. Yes. And like, you can take this dream sequence and shove it up your ass. Yes. <laughs> and it's Peter Dinklage, who is a great actor um, and is kind of one of those actors that has actually 
broken out of that mold, which I love because too many dwarves have been very um, uh, uh, set and you will play this kind of person. This is all. And he's the one, no, I can play a little dictator if I want in Game of Thrones. I can be the Machiavellian. I can be in Station Master and play a whole character who has feelings and thoughts. But no, um, mm-hmm. one thing thread in this double is the when rock stars get money and for some, it's like in, uh, oh, shoot, um, the Leo movie with Martin Scorsese, that is about seven movies. Um, but the stock, uh, he's playing the um, stock exchange guy. Um, mm-hmm. And oh, when, uh, Wolf of Wall Street. Wolf of Wall Street. When they get money, they shoot dwarfs into a friggin' dartboard. It's like, it's mm-hmm. this insane thing of money and extravagance. And again, it's low key and it doesn't go right. But Spinal Tap shows that exact thing perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Actually, uh, don't, don't you love the fact that this, they try and have their sets extravagant as they would if they were playing a stadium, but they're in small, um, like, um, student um, uh, halls? <laughs> Yeah, they they make like yeah these really elaborate like mm. sets for them to perform with like this Alice Cooper level yes. like insanity going on stage when it's like this is not a huge production, guys. No, you do not need pyrotechnics. You're in a club. You can scale it yeah. back a little bit. <laughs> no wonder things are going wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, anything Anything else you want to say about Spinal Tap before we move on to the main event? I'm I'm just sad that it took me this long to come back to it because it's fantastic. Well, now you can watch it all the time because um, Absolutely. It's, it's an amazing movie. And I think even though it has permeated pop culture and just cultural references and the, a way of speaking, um, I think people forget about the movie a little bit. Um, so, yeah, if you haven't seen this movie in a while, please go back and visit because, yeah, my partner doesn't love to rewatch movies all the time, but... There's a very select thing of movies, and Spinal Tap is one of them. Um, when I had it on, he was like, we're watching Spinal Tap, are we? I'm like, yeah, we are. Yeah, <laughs> hell yeah. Hell yeah. Let's get on to Amadeus um, and the original rock star, that is Mozart. Um, yes. It was Again, the curtains are opening for this. Oh, this movie's delicious. Ken, what is going to be your first trailer for Amadeus? Uh, I think a uh, first trailer I want to mention is for uh, uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Yes, this is the one <laughs> I was referring to. <laughs> yes. I enjoyed the show. I also I write songs. Our lead singer just quit. Then you'll need someone new. I love the way you move on stage. Room belongs to you. Don't you see what you could be? No one will play us on the radio. We need to get experimental. Do it again. One more. How many more Galileos do you want? Roger, there's only room in this band for one hysterical queen. Mark these words. No one will play a queen. Fortune favors the bold. Yes, well, that movie had a long story production because you probably heard the story about how he was originally going to be played by Sasha Baron Cohen. He would have been perfect, I think. He, yeah. Well, but... for for that type of movie, because I think the reason he got off is because the, the reason he sort of stepped away from that production is because they wanted to make it PG-13. And Sasha Baron Cohen said, and I think in a way he's sort of right, if you want to do a Freddie Mercury biopic, it has to be a hard R. It does. And also, um, 
The rest of Queen were the producers on that movie. So it wasn't yes. just going to be about Freddie Mercury, which I can understand. I, if you're Brian May, if you're the other two I can't think of, it's oh, got to, Roger Taylor, I Roger know. Taylor and um I the think other the basis, I, I can't remember his name, but he sort of stepped away from it all. He did. Yeah, I think it was the, those two guys. I can understand if you're in this and you're considered one of the best guitarists, you're considered one of the best drummers in in rock and roll. Being overshadowed by someone like Freddie Mercury, who is just a most charismatic, talented performer ever to exist, has got to be annoying. So if you're making a movie, you're going to want your story. And I think it is was a mistake to have it PG-13 again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, and in addition to that, I really feel like them producing that movie, they probably don't want to depict the band in that way. Exactly. And that's probably, I think it was a big disagreement between Brian May and Sasha Baron Cohen. Yes. But I think Remy Malik is great in it. And I think he looks more like Freddie Mercury. I think he does. I think he looks like Freddie Mercury and I think he is great. But I think if he was Sasha Baron Cohen, I think he would have taken... It would have been more about Freddie Mercury. The others would have been kind of sidelined. Um, and I think it would have been much yeah. more sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And I think it would have leaned way more heavily into his homosexuality as in the sexual part of it. Um, yes. Be, even because I think Remy Malik is really good. But I think it's a soft portrayal of Freddie Mercury. And for me, I'm like, oh, this guy was so many more shades of in eccentricity of of genius, of um, everything else that I think this movie is willing to do, but I understand why they didn't do it. Um, I mean, the big thing I better have this movie is that in the space of a day within the narrative of the movie, he comes to terms, fully comes to terms with his homosexuality. He gets tested positive uh, for HIV AIDS and he performs at Live Aid, which I'm like, that's a hell of a day. <laughs> right, which, which, you know, historically is not really the order that happened. I think he only found out he was HIV positive maybe a few years after the Live Aid concert. It was very, he died, once he found out to when he died, it was very quick, yeah. Oh, and have you ever seen the music video for The Days of Our Lives? Yes. It's a beautiful song, but it is very sad seeing him in that state. Yeah, it is. It was, I love that they showed him into that state because he actually withdrew because he knew that he was wasting away and he did not look um well and to see him but he was yeah but he was a showman to the end absolutely he was and i think that's what bohemian and rhapsody does is that because so much emphasis is put on live aid which by the way queen's performance was one of the greatest live acts ever oh yeah Um, it was if you watch the actual live aid you were seeing this man who is clearly doing cunnilingus at every straight man he sees in that crowd which is like 50,000 people all jumping at the same time. He has them in the palm of his hand. And his whole AO thing that he does. Oh my God. I mean, I had an ex who was obsessed with Live Aid. So we we watched, and I think he did buy like this DVD something set of the whole weekend. Um, and it was just funny, Bob Galadoff going, give me money. I'm like, is this actually going to the people who need it? Or are you just going to get very wealthy off this? But anyway, that's the right. same thing. Um, but watching the act before and the act after, I cannot remember who they were, but all you watch is Queen. And when, as soon as he comes on stage, it's electric. And that is why I can kind of see why they made um, the Live Aid performance the center of that movie, because it was one of the greatest performances ever. And I can totally see why you chose this as the trailer to Amadeus, who, if you read anything about Mozart, this was his thing, his 
operas were, especially when he was conducting, were electric. Um, not everyone got them, but there's a reason why we know Mozart more than we do Solari, except we only know him is because of well, this movie. <laughs> yeah, very much. No, yeah, uh, Freddie Mercury, for my money, definitely the probably the greatest male rock vocalist of all time. Yes, um, I would say him and Bowie, but I think in terms of just vocal performance and showmanship and just being that electric and just being able to walk into a room and go, I'm here, and then just there's a and there's, there's something electric about it that you can't express. Um, and I think oh, yeah. that's the difference between, as we will get into this movie, the difference between passion and work ethic and just God-given talent. I think there is something, mm -hmm. there is a, something that is God-given talent, um, which is what Amadeus is all about. And I think Freddie Merc that was Freddie Mercury. You can't, there's never going to be anyone else like him. Um, oh, 100%. And watching the, that crowd at Live Aid, simultaneously I and mean, when they're clapping at we're the champions um it's and i've only ever seen it on television and it, i still get like even talking about it i can feel the arms of my <laughs> raising up so um mm -hmm. yes this is um absolutely perfect um all right for my second trailer i'm gonna go for another kind of genius um well actually maybe not genius um ed wood from 1994 tim burton the true story of a hollywood legend ed wood and action he made movies like no one else you want to keep moving you've got to get through that door ah that was perfect perfect do you know anything about film production well i like to think so he had an eye for talent i met bella lugosi I thought he was dead. This is the most uncomfortable coffin I've ever been in. No, he's very much alive. <laughs> you flying saucer? He had a passion for storytelling. Get me transvestites. I need transvestites. You're flashy. They want that. Okay. But they want professionalism. So Nick's on the Nelly without losing naivete. What kind of a movie is this? It's science fiction. A heartbreaking romance. Brave robbers from outer space. Brave robbers from what? I'm so glad you picked this because I was thinking of this. Yeah, it weirdly fits. Um, yes, 100%. This is a man who loved making movies. Did people get those movies? No. Was he constantly, did he, I like to think of myself as a filmmaker. Um, it is such, but it is such this celebration of making art which i think again is amadeus um yeah but i mean i am love i mean you are a big universal fan as well um mm -hmm. i know that you wanted to choose all your all the universal movies for um for your favorite um yes and and matt didn't let you um but to have the sort of celebration of bella lugosi and of edwards and landau landau is so oh my, good landau is so so good um it's kind of one of those ones when the oscars really get it right it's like yeah you give landau that oscar for playing bella lugosi yeah. it, um, it hurt me that it, that samuel L. jackson had to miss out for pulp fiction but between the two of them you gotta go landau you gotta go landau i mean it's hard i mean again well actually wood is from another hell of a year 1984 1994 um where it was kind of hard to go when you realize what movies came out in 94 and then yeah, you got forrest gump that year too gump that yeah and that was the one that kind of reigned over everything but yeah when you watch um landau just it was kind of one of those things where i did not realize landau 
Landau was charming. Landau was an amazing character actor. I just did not think he had that performance of Bella Lugosi in him. That he gets the pain, the frustration, the hope, the love of performing that um, Bella Lugosi had. Yes, um, there are disagreements over how bad his heroin addiction was, how much money he had, whether Edward was taking advantage of him a little bit, which I think it's a little bit of A, column B. I think he was a huge fan and I think he realized he could get him for yeah. cheap because that's how Edward yep. made his movies. Um, but it is it is another perfect movie. Um, I, I love it. Absolutely. And like you said, a, a great pairing of like just this odd and quirky artist who I really love the the moment um, near the end when they're air, when they're uh, showing Plan 9 from Outer Space and he just sort of has this look on his face and he says, he looks at the audience and he says, this is the one. This is yeah. the one I'm going to be remembered for. And it is. I mean, yes, not... Not the way now, he intended. Not the way he intended. I think it is now. I think people are coming around to Plan 9 is like going, this isn't the worst movie ever made. There are far worse oh, movies. not even close. It's not even too close. entertaining. It's too entertaining to be that. And, but I think people are coming around to going, oh no, I generally like this movie instead of making fun of it is what they did. For decades people are now going and i think the movie had a lot to edward had a lot to do with this because they real because they went oh but he really enjoyed making movies i mean again this is a movie that doesn't go into his alcoholism because again it's a pg right well disney later make this movie which always was this they wanted him for edward scissorhands or is it because he made edward scissorhands that they were like okay you can now make edward i think edward scissorhands came out in 1990 and i think this was 94 yes because this was Disney wanting Burton in their corner. So they go, okay, fine, you can make this movie. And it made no money. Yeah, so they did it through uh, through Touchstone, yeah. Yes, yeah, it was Touchstone. Um, but it is it is a wonderful, wonderful... Uh, <laughs> I, I could watch this movie again, I might actually. Um, Ken, yeah, what is going to be your second... Pick. Great, yes. What is going to be your second trailer for Amadeus? Uh, second one I'm going to bring up is 2014 Whiplash. Yes. You're here for a reason. Have fun. Five, six, and... I want to be great. And you're not. We got Buddy Rich here. Little trouble there. You're rushing. Here we go. Five, six, and. Were you rushing or were you dragging? I, I don't know. If you deliberately sabotage my band, I will gut you like a pig. Oh, my dear God. Are you one of those single-tier people? You are a worthless pansy ass who is now weeping and slobbering all over my drum set like a nine-year-old girl. So how's it going with the studio band? Good. Yeah, I think he likes me more now. Um, the cost of genius, actually. Yes. This is a... Yes. Uh, you want to be good at something? You're going to have to be an asshole and treat yourself like shit and let other people treat you like shit. <laughs> yeah. This, um, my understanding was apparently, um, oh, what's the director's name? It's Damien something. Oh, um, oh um, yes, because he's made up quite a few good movies. La La Land and First Man and... Damien Chazelle. Yes, Chazelle. Yes. Apparently in an interview, he originally, his original concept was this would be like a borderline horror psychological thriller, sort of in the same vein as Black Swan. I can kind of see that vibe underneath. I mean, it's not as intense. It does have some really intense moments. It's not as blatant as Black Swan, but I can definitely yeah. see it going in that direction. I mean, a lot of it is horrifying. 
Um, mm-hmm. It is literally saying, if you want to be the best, you have to do this. And there is no other way around it. And that is a really dark thought. Yeah. And um, uh, I actually, uh, my dad taught me to play the drums. And when I showed him this movie, uh, my dad like hated the character of uh, Terrence Fletcher, which J.K. Simmons is outstanding in this. Oh yeah, again, one an Oscar. <laughs> yes, and rightfully so. But mm. the the moment that like my dad like really hated him was when he's really psychologically manipulating um, Miles Teller mm. near the end, uh, where he goes to see him at the jazz club, and he says, "There are no two words in the English language more harmful." than good job my dad's like that's bullshit no you should encourage people yes but his whole thing is i'm going to torture you to try and make you better i'm never going to tell you you've done a good job because then you think you're going to plateau and that's horrifying it's um it's the fact that that's kind of the thesis of the movie is terrifying and it's a really it's a horrifying movie in that respect i think it's really good it's not a movie i've revisited um actually i've never it's very upsetting it's very upsetting like you're sitting there going oh i I need i need to um i need to watch something happy where people are happy um yeah and everything like miles teller miles teller at the end he thinks he's won a victory because he does this amazing drum solo and he does this whole act and terrence fletcher is like smiling at him and he feels like he got this victory it's like no, dude, this guy has used you and tormented you. And now you're like his little, his show monkey that he's using. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, the fact that he just starts throwing things at him from the get-go and making mm-hmm. him know, I mean, there's literally the no one cries while drumming kind of moment um, is absolutely horrifying. And the fact that he picks him out to torture and to be his little show monkey purely because mm-hmm. he thinks he knows, not just because he thinks he's actually got the talent, but because he can it's yeah um, oh yeah and when they're when they're doing um when he sort of brings in that other drummer the redheaded guy yeah he, he was he was never gonna give this guy the lead part he was never gonna give the other guy who was there first the lead part mm. no it was all about just torturing this guy to make him better yeah it's well it's a very uh cellular and uh uh mozart relationship to be honest um mm-hmm. It's just, he's a uh, J.K. Simmons is just more blatant about what he's doing. Um, yes. It's, it's, it's a terrifying performance of what people will do in positions of power and what mm-hmm. they, I mean, it's the whole um, gymnastics thing of getting in these people who will just beat people into being good. Um, yes. I mean, I was watching this amazing documentary about really something disgusting that was going on in the, in the gymnast because it was, they allowed an environment to happen, but they were talking about what's your name who did um, a vault on a broken ankle. And what these and what the other gymnast said is like, she was never going to say no. She was never going to be allowed to say no. She had to, we had to win the gold. And if she yep. that is what she had to do. And she did both, she did her both ankles because of it, because she was putting pressure on the other one. And when you and she was hailed for that moment. She was the best person ever. And then when you actually realize what that cost her and what they actually did to her, it's like, she probably couldn't compete ever again, but that was her one moment and that's what she had to do. And mm-hmm. they were beating them. They were they were abusing them into being good. And it's that same dynamic. And what it sort of says about genius, I think is absolutely terrifying. Um, and what you have to give up and what you have to do to yourself. No, this is this is a, a perfect pick. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so what's your uh, final trailer? 
I'm going to go for a documentary. I only found out this existed like a couple of weeks ago. So when I watched it, I was a bit annoyed that no one told me that Todd Haynes had put out a documentary on the Velvet Underground. We have all come here together, over there, Andy Warhol. We have this chance to combine music and art and films all together. We're sponsoring a new band. It's called The Velvet Underground. I'm in a rock and roll band. That was my first time in New York, and I was appalled. This place is filthy. <laughs> Cinema, money, parties. It was outrageous. People came because the cameras were running. They thought they could become famous. At the center of it is the exploding art world. It opened your eyes to a lot of possibilities. Yeah, I, this is a, Todd Haynes made a documentary about the Velvet Underground and their kind of rise into obscurity, I think is probably the best way of, of putting it. Um, okay, I was unaware of this. Yeah, it's Disney Plus, which is probably why no one heard of it. And right. I was just looking at the uh, music <sighs> documentaries. It was either going to be the Beatles, the new Peter Jackson um, Get Back, or, and then I watched Velvet and I'm a Velvet Underground fan because I fell in love with the history of it first. This and the Ramones. Mm -hmm. There was New York in a certain time that made New York in the 70s and 80s when it was at its most broken, made uh, hip hop, uh, freestyle hip hop, hip hop, and also punk and whatever the Velvet Underground were doing. I mean, if this is a band that has the reputation for too many notes, it's Velvet. And And the fact that they were involved with Andy Warhol and the factory, the fact they started out as this weird multimedia thing, it's, but they never got the popularity that other band contemporaries of their time did, mainly mm-hmm. because Andy Warhol didn't know how to manage a band. <laughs> um, right. It's, it's a fascinating story. And it wasn't until um, Lou Reed went on his own and, the Transformer album, which I always thought was a Velvet Underground album for years. It's like, no, it's a solo, where he got the pop the pop star recognition, the rock star recognition that he actually wanted. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a fascinating story and a fascinating look at a, a place and a time, which I think Amadeus does perfectly. The fact that uh, Milos Forman is trying to recreate 17th, 18th century Vienna, um, I think Todd Haynes captures... 19, late 60s, 70s New York perfectly about what was happening Excellent. in these pockets. So yeah, it's definitely worth a watch. I really, really enjoyed it. Cool. Mm. Cool. And with that, we're going to be getting in to a movie that that, again, another perfect movie. I- Are we going to appall you with something confidential and disgusting? Let's hope so, because that is what you really like unconfessed crimes of buried wickedness. If that is what brings you to us, the prospect of hearing horrors, you shall not go unrewarded. I don't believe it. The whole city is talking. You hear it all over. What a story. What a scandal. What a comedy. What a tragedy. Incredible. I don't believe it. Who can believe it? What horrors have you heard? Tell us. Tell us. Tell us at once. Tell us about Wolfgang. Amadeus, Mozart, Mozart, Mozart. <laughs> How good is he, this Mozart? 
He's remarkable. He's an unprincipled, spoiled, conceited brat. I'm a vulgar man. But I assure you, my music is not. Don't this? I watched. I haven't seen. I don't think I've ever seen the theatrical. Um, but I love the director's cut. Um, oh, so the extended director's good because that's the one I watched. Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't even found, find the other one, and I'm like, what were they cut out of this? Because this is just the the character development is perfect. Um, when did you first watch Amadeus? A uh, few few years back, I want to say maybe 2015 is yeah. maybe when I first watched it, but. I mean, I just, it's so funny. It's a three hour movie about Mozart and I'm never bored. It's consistently entertaining. Really is. I saw this movie a couple of years ago. It was actually relatively late. Um, And I was kind of surprised by that. It does this trick of being a biopic, which is a bio rock pick, which is never my favorite genre, but it never feels like it's a music biopic which mm-hmm. I think is a magic trick that Milos Forman pulls off and continue to pull off throughout his career. I think this is why he kept getting things like Man on the Moon and uh, The People versus Larry Flint is he can make these, um, these biopics and make them not feel like you're watching a biopic. Well, I think a big part of it for, um, for Amadeus is how it sort of blends... Um, uh history with sort of fiction because yes. it is being told from the point of an aging and mentally deteriorating Salieri yes. who basically the way the story goes I actually I'm gonna bring up a conversation that I had with a friend of mine I'm gonna mm. I, I messaged a friend of mine a while back when I first rewatched the movie um because a friend of mine, he is like big into like classical music. He actually has played like concert halls in New York. Uh, mm. He's a violinist. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I actually messaged him. Uh, I'll just read off the conversation here. I said, hey, dude, uh, you'll know the answer to this. I know Amadeus blends historical fact with fiction. Is it true that Salieri actually claimed to murder Mozart or did he deny it? And he explained pretty much how I thought it was. Mm. He says Salieri claimed to have poisoned Mozart after he had already gone mentally insane. Later on, when he was pretty much on his deathbed, he he confessed that those rumors were false and he had nothing to do with it. Mm. So this sort of like takes and it sort of says, hey, this is the story that Salieri is telling. There's some historical facts about Mozart but this is largely a fictitious telling of what happened between them yes this is based on a Tony award-winning production which Mm -hmm. is pretty much from what I could gather the show is now narrated by Salieri of his point of view of Mozart and the claim that he killed him which even in the movie I love how they keep it ambiguous um yeah you don't see him poison him um, even though that's what he says, but at the same mm-hmm. time, you see him literally working the man to death. Um, but not at the same time, Mozart is making very specific choices about how he wants to live his life, which is a very right. rock and, which is in the way the movie shows it is a very rock and roll lifestyle. It's sex, drugs, and yeah, literally it's it's, it's debauchery. Music. It's debauchery. He's getting into everything, so he's literally exhausting himself. Um, and then you have Salieri fucking with him throughout the whole entire movie. And you can kind of see the move, the way the movie does it is very ambiguous. Is it, it's kind of like 
this man confessing his hatred for his favorite artist, thinking, Mm -hmm. having guilt about what happened, even though it probably wasn't his fault. I love how this movie keeps it very ambiguous as as to what happened. You're hearing his, his voice, you're hearing his side of the story, but what you're seeing doesn't always match the narration which is how yeah, I think well, you do narration. We'll, we'll get into it. <laughs> it's the whole unreliable narrator thing, exactly. right? Exactly. Yes. He is absolutely and, an unreliable narrator. Yeah. And I just, I love how he tells about how when he was a small kid, he like prayed to God, make me like Mozart. I want to be like him. And then as he grows and he finally meets Mozart, he sort of sees that he's this childish hyena cackling goofball. Who never who, grew up. Which, Mm. who never grew up and a lot of people have also made the comparison of Mozart to Michael Jackson actually I was thinking that was running through my head I went oh my god he's Michael Jackson and this is the early 80s when Michael Jackson was the biggest he it was the biggest thing ever in yep he was everywhere I mean I don't think bad had come out yet but Thriller was definitely everywhere and his even reputation at that time was the kid this musical genius who never grew up um yeah yeah, and I can definitely see them pulling from that, and I can definitely see the Michael Jackson um, connection because you can just see it. I mean, we'll get. In, uh, I kind of to start. Okay, so we'll just. I mean, that moment when Mozart's picking out his wigs when he's kind of realizing he's going to be possibly working for the court. He's going to come to Vienna. He's going to make his name, even though he's. Everyone knows he's a musical genius, but he's being kind of controlled, and this is his first time he's going to be on his own. And the choosing of his wigs is one of my favorite moments of the movie. It just oh, shows yeah. it's just like beautiful yeah. nevite of the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, just another one. Another one. He has one that's like shaped like a horse's head. And another and one that's like, like they're also good. They're also good. I'll take them all. Um, even though he can't afford it, he can never afford anything in this movie, but yet he keeps spending spending the money. Um is Again, we're talking about how everything's subtle in Spinal Tap. This is equally like this. I mean, we've already sort of talked about how this is the story of Salieri giving his deathbed confession and saying, I killed the greatest living musician to ever live. But the movie does not definitively say that. It is, and this is what this movie is. It is, I'm surprised at the fact how many Oscars it didn't win, to be honest. Um, Right, I was looking at who was nominated this year. And this is the movie that apart from um, uh, Killing Fields, this is the movie that's kind of carried on. Um, It is, it was a a Sally Field movie that was the biggest contender. And I'm surprised this didn't win cinematography. I'm surprised this didn't win. I mean, this one set design, this one, don't think it won score, maybe because it's all Mozart music. um, Right, I mean... Yeah, the, the fact that this this one this one quite a few Oscars, I'm surprised it didn't sweep. Just the what Milos Foreman is doing in this movie is incredible. I believe he won Best Director, didn't he? He did, and he also it also won Best Picture. So I'm not. It won so Best s- Picture, and uh, F. Murray Abraham and Tom Hulse were both nominated for Best Lead, but uh, F. Murray Abraham took it. Which is very rare when you get two actors in the same category. It doesn't usually go to either of them. It's kind of splits. They always yeah, say right? it's going to split the vote. Um, I think the only yeah. time this happened last time was with a, a movie I was going to pick as a trailer, actually, The Favourite, um, when hmm. Olivia Coleman won. Actually, no way. They, they were talking about Rachel Weisz and, um, oh, my God, I'm blanking today. 
what's her name she was uh in la la land in another uh thingy movie oh, um uh, uh emma stone emma stone they were sort yeah. of debating okay they're both being nominated for best supporting actor neither are ever going to win someone else is going to win which what happened and then olivia coleman comes in and beats glenn close for the oscar which is still one of my favorite moments in the academy yeah. award it's like yes because she's so good in that movie <laughs> um but it's kind of like that doesn't happen they don't usually win um and because famously with uh talk all about eve um and I think it was Anne Baxter and uh, Betty Davis were both nominated in the same category when Betty Davis, actually that was the same year of friggin' Sons of Boulevard. So that was a very complicated past actress. Yeah. I life. think the, I'm, uh, the same thing happened with uh, uh, with Rocky with Best Supporting Actor. You had Burt Young and Burgess Meredith and neither yes. one of them won. Yes, it often splits the vote, but they, um, and so when I say I, I think it should have won more Oscars, this thing won the Oscars. It wasn't like, it's very rare for best director, especially in the last 20 years, uh, best director and best film to be the same thing. I mean, the last time I can remember in modern history is this probably a few times, but I know Parasite did it, but it is not a usual thing that happens. The Oscars likes to share out the love. Like, we'll, I'll give this I person know, uh, best original script, I, then thing, da, da, da. So, yeah. I know 2011, the artist won best director and best picture. I always forget about the artist. Yeah, that did. Yeah. yes yeah. um but yeah it deserved all the deserved all the oscars i mean this has this is shot in all natural light which i'm always amazed when i hear that i'm like how oh, i didn't know that <laughs> yeah, yeah they, that, i didn't know that yeah <coughs> um this thing was uh they filmed in prague which hmm. would have been terrifying for milo because he had already left this uh soviet controlled uh this was still a communist state, the Czech Republic. Um, and I know they had Secret Service people following them whenever they, whatever they were doing. I mean, Milos was pretty oh, much- all this. Yeah, he was on set and he was in his hotel room because um, he had left. He was still a, um, people loved him because he was kind of considered the, lo the local legend who got out of the Czech Republic and went to make movies. I mean, he'd already made uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo Nest by this stage um mm -hmm. yep. and so going back to prague in 1985 would have been terrifying i would have gone what if they don't let me leave um right that would have been had to be in the back of this guy's head but he was trying to recreate vienna in the 18th century so that would have been prague because vienna's far too modern at this point um mm -hmm. and to be under that <sighs> stress and still make this perfect movie um is yeah that had to have been and there's maybe i'm reading a bit to win it but i got that sense of threat throughout the movie of something bad's going to happen at any moment because you have such an unreliable narrator and he starts with yeah i murdered mozart <laughs> so you're kind of waiting for yeah. that thing to happen yeah but i could be reading way do, too much into it and i do love that opening scene where he like he's like do you know who i am and the priest is like i'm unfamiliar sir and he plays of his songs he's just like i'm sorry they're unfamiliar and then he does the dun 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 dun, dun, dun. and he's just like oh i didn't know you write that i didn't that was mozart <laughs> it's yeah it's uh, it sets up his character perfectly this is a man who has been bitter for such a long time as you said you see him as a child praying to be like Mozart. He's already heard about this child prodigy who is already composing, who can play any instrument. Um, I mean, they show him blindfolded playing the piano forte. 
Um, mm-hmm. This is this is thing, and he wants so he works so hard. Yet he will never be as good as Mozart because Mozart just has this thing about him. Um, mm-hmm. Even though Mozart has his own host of problems, but the fact yeah. that Salieri is constantly obsessing about the music, I think, is such a perfect way to get into this character's head. Yeah, well, and it's just <coughs> excuse me. Um, it's this uh, envy that he's living through, and you gotta like think it's just like my dude, you are the core composer for Vienna uh you you are like set for life but he probably doesn't know that Mozart is like struggling financially yeah but it's just you have everything that you could ever want and yet it's it's you want what this guy has and there's your problem dude that is um you he keeps comparing himself I mean this is a guy who um apparently did kind of he was he was um important in constructing how modern operas are so he did actually have an impact on history but people just don't know his name because his music was very contemporary it was of the time it was to make the court happy it was um it was the music that the powers that be wanted to hear it was all in italian it wasn't in german he wasn't trying to do uh the uh, marriage of figaro um he wasn't trying to do any of that he wasn't rocking the boat but he was very successful he had everything he could have dreamed of Yet he's looking at this guy going, this guy writes too many notes. This guy is doing something I've never heard before. And I know enough about music to know what he's yeah. doing is magic. There is And nothing- I love, I love I, that. I love, I love the scene where he's just looking over his, his um, manuscripts and he's just brought to tears. And there's the part where he's talking to, um, uh, Mozart's wife Costanza and he's just like these are originals yes sir he doesn't do rewrites yeah and it's just like and so he's telling the priest later on like in went in the insane asylum and he says like it was as if they were already in his head and he just transcribed it which he did I mean they go back to the end of the movie when set before Mozart dies he's writing he's telling him his uh can't remember what piece it was his unfinished piece um famously yes. um and he's literally right. He's on his deathbed. He's literally composing it. And the way the movie goes, no, you got to go FB, da da da. And Salary's just not getting it. And then they play what's in Mozart's head. You can hear the the different chords and the different things. And you're like, oh, it is in his head. This is how he writes music. It's not. I mean, anytime someone creative finds someone who in their field who doesn't do drafts, it stings. It it oh, it I'm does. Sure. Yeah, it has to sting. It's like, wait, I do this. I strive over and because you're told you got to write bad, you've got to do get it all out of you. You got to do this. You got to rewrite. You got to draft. And to see what Mozart, which I don't know if he did actually, he probably did draft. That's because he he's still human. But in the movie, to have mm-hmm. someone because the movie's really trying to make the distinction between passion, hard work, and God given talent and or God given yeah. genius. And how and yeah, and so and there is and there is and there is like a blending of the two, I think, because there's the part where he sends a maid to work for them who's really just his spy for them. Yes. <clears throat> and he, uh when she reports to him, she says, like, no, he works hard, he stays up writing and writing and writing. Yeah, he's literally working himself to death. Um, as well. He's the 
he is the typical rock and roll icon. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, we he's very much Michael Jackson, and Michael Jackson probably did that as well, though he was also working with Quincy Jones and a whole bunch of other people in the studio to try and get the sound mm-hmm. uh, right. Um, but he's that typical rock and roll archetype who burns the candle at both ends. He likes to go out and party. He's um, He loves a good Bacchanal, um, and yet he will also not stop writing. So this is a man yeah. who's probably not sleeping, spending far too much money and constant, constantly playing catch-up. And I mm-hmm. love how Salilary does take advantage of that when he sort of sees that, um, oh, I can, this guy doesn't want to teach, but he's going to have to. I can block him in that. So the only thing he can do is write more. Um, mm-hmm. It's a fascinating thing. Like he wants him to write more. He wants him to cr- create but he wants him to fail at the same time. It's a very, it's a, it's a very devilish, just manipulative, manipulative thing he's thing. doing. Exactly. But he's and also his a, number one fan, which makes it even more terrifying because he wants exactly. to listen. He wants to listen to what he's coming up with. Exactly. But he doesn't want him to be successful with it. It seems. No. Um, I, I really, uh, Another very devilish thing he does, um, and I believe this is only in the extended cut that we watched, mm. <clears throat> which is I think is sort of the most common one people see nowadays. But it's when um, uh, he pretty much tries to, because uh, I don't think, because yeah, no, he doesn't even think she's going to go through with it. But when he sort of tries to tell Costanza, "Hey, if you sleep with me, I will put in a good word for him." It's done so much out of spite because it's just after he's read his drafts and he's realizing, yeah. He's not drafting. Um, this is just and, music he's hearing he, in his head. Yeah, he takes it out tell, of his it. yeah. And you can tell he doesn't think she's going to go through with it because when she shows up and she's ready to go through with it, he, like, rings the bell for her to be taken out. Yes, he's disgusted um, with himself and with her, which is, again, this is why Abraham, I don't think he's ever been this good. Um, and I don't think... Um, he's been able to be in a part that's led him to be this good. Um, Yeah. But the fact that he's able to, he's an unreliable narrator. He has to do multiple things at the same time. Like he's trying to assault uh, Costanza, but he doesn't think she's going to come back. He's, she, he thinks she's just going to think she shows up. She's getting uh, naked. He's realizing, Oh no, no, I actually have to go through with this. Nope. Okay. And he just kicks her out unceremoniously. It's not even a, wait to put your top back on it's a just get her out of here and you can tell he's just, is just as much disgusted with her saying i will go through with this because i want my husband to be successful and with himself allowing himself to um put her in that position but also to even suggest it because it was a, it was out mm-hmm. of anger he did it which is not justifying it in any way shape or form i think it's showing him at his most i have power over these people and i will will yeah, it as i want him, to yeah like you said it's it's very much him being in a position of power mm. um uh real quick i i also want to say she i think is sort of overlooked in this i think she's really good she's and, amazing yeah elizabeth Burridge and me, is, yeah and, yeah elizabeth Burridge. Burridge yeah let, let me also uh ask you did you uh you, you, as a classic slasher fan, and I know you are, you know what else she was in, correct? Oh, yeah. A little movie called Funhouse, directed by Toby Hooper, which she is also which fantastic in. <laughs> she is great in that. When I realized that that was the same actress, I was just sort of like, wow, she really, like in three years, she went from this 
little slasher movie that I mean we all know and love. I'm not sure how great how well it was received at the time. And then in three years, she's in Amadeus. Good honor. And really good. And she looks younger in Amadeus than she does in Funhouse. I don't know how that happened. Um, she <gasps> looks so small. I think it's because they dress her up in such because it's the 18th century. So everyone's wearing like those big um French Revolution wigs and um and dresses and her boobs are up, up by her chin. Um right. kind of thing. But she and because of that, she looks so tiny and so young um and you can kind of tell that she is very much a per she's playing a person out of her element she's fallen in love with this thing (laughs) this she loves the fact that he's creative she loves the fact that he is talented and the music then comes out of him and that he's a genius but only in this one thing everything else he's terrible at like the fact everything else She's having yeah, to pick up the pieces. Money. He can't handle money. She <clears throat> is not very good at it either because she's so inexperienced. So she's having to step up and go, no, I want the money in my hand. I do not want to be waiting for promises. Um, yeah. Or, when, when he's going to play for like the common people, they're like, yes. oh, yeah, you'll get a share of the profit. She's like, no, no, we need money now. Yeah, this is not, this is not, uh, we do not invest in things. We need the money now. Um, it is very, it, it is just, and when she goes, he just lets money through balls through his hands when she's talking to Salilary about, I need you to put in a good word. She's, I love that she walks this really amazing balance of being, not being ready to be put in the situation that she's in, but standing up for the occasion. When she stands up to his father is one of my favorite moments. Oh, um, great moment. When, because yes, uh, they put in, Salilary's put in a maid to be his spy. She's saying, look, you don't have to pay me. I'm already being paid. Which, yeah, is dodgy. But she's like, you know what? I need a maid. I'm having a kid. Come on in. I don't. And he's like, that is disgraceful. You get that. That's what common people do. And she's like, you know what? We need the money because he's useless. So if I'm going to take the, I'm taking this thing, I'm saying yes. And it's, yeah, I think because she's caught in the middle between Abraham and Hulse, I think she does get overlooked. But I think it's an incredible performance from her. She grounds this movie in a way. She grounds Mozart and I love the fact that she calls him Bulfi. Um oh it's so cute. It's so cute. Um she grounds this movie in a way that needs to be grounded and she kind of ca- she's the one that you can tell is carrying this relationship. She's doing everything she possibly can so her husband can write, but more importantly so her husband can make money and that is a hard thing to walk. I think it's a brilliant performance. Yeah, and she's the one like because she sort of has to be the grown up in the relationship because the you know this is and her she looks like she's twelve, who, which is a disconnect. Right, <laughs> right. Whereas her husband is this like yeah he's this brilliant composer, but you know he loves poop and fart jokes. Yes, and he's he's a child. He is. He, he gets excited about buying his wigs. Um, this is a man who has not had to learn. He had he had a very controlled childhood. Like it's like yeah you perform here, you're under this patronage, you're doing this, this, and this um and he likes again much like michael jackson it's much like michael jackson this was never someone who learned how to do the fundamentals and to have a character who looks like she's 12 years old um which it makes it more uncomfortable when she's when she's naked and she's right it's like oh no 
Cellular, yeah, this, stop with it. With this middle-aged man. With this yeah. middle-aged man, um, with that voice, it makes him even sound more powerful. Um, gotta love when I, um, I love uh, if Mario Abraham's voice. It's just the best. Um, yes. Which is why he, why he, this is why he should narrate your movie. Um, and it's truly uncomfortable. But she's the one that has to grow up. And I, the actual just purely visual effect of this is amazing and it kind of makes her more than the wife character i think because she's is the one that has to be she's not the exactly the the um nagger she's not the um kind of either the disgruntled wife the over supportive wife or the or the one who's telling her son that he has she has to be he has to behave she's all three of those but that gives her as much personality as the guys do and i yeah, I fell in love with her so much. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, Stasi and Wolfie, the fact that they have pet names for each other, it's just, it's 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 perfect. It's beautiful. And they were a great couple. They were. They they fitted together well. They did love each other, even though they annoyed the living snot. And you could tell yeah. Mozart was not faithful <laughs> at all. No, 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 no. <laughs> Never. It's, yeah. Well, and, and that's also like uh, another moment of envy from uh, Salieri when he's just like, and at that moment, I knew that he had had her. Yes. That's a, that fiend, that beast. That, that's the thing. Your Abraham impression, spot on, by the way. But that is the thing. Oh, thank you. Because Abraham, if Mary, uh, Solari decides stupidly when he's 12 to promise his virtue for his music talents. <laughs> yeah, his chastity. <laughs> his chastity. I will give God, I will give you my chastity if you make me like Mozart. Don't be promising that kind of thing because yes, then Mozart is going to sleep with the woman that you like. It's not that is yes. that is just what's going to happen. Mozart is a dog. <laughs> he will, yeah. Apparently, he is sleeping with everything that he not. It's not overt in the movie, but you can tell he's sleeping around. Um, and it's yeah. Don't put yourself in that position where you cannot sleep sleep with other people. It's if that is what you want, if that is what you truly desire and then get pissy because she's sleeping with someone else. I, that adds to yeah. his petty jealousy so much and so well. You're just like, yeah. I know And it's this like guy. this possessiveness <laughs> that's like really toxic. It's so toxic. He is such a toxic character, which makes him even more perfect and how he fits into this toxic um, Vienna uh, court because everyone is toxic. I love the two guys who are constantly... Um, uh, going oh no there's a proper way of doing things you can't have a German um a German opera that's common I'm like you speak German you don't speak Italian you're <laughs> speaking German yeah. right now <laughs> and, yeah, and I, yeah I always thought that was weird that they didn't want an opera in their own language I mean for I will actually say this I you would think it would be odd to like hear an opera in English, but my friend Matt, not Matt Bledsoe, a different Matt, a few <laughs> years back we went to uh, the Harrison Opera House, which is yeah. a little opera house in Norfolk, Virginia, yeah. and they had a production of this opera called Seven Deadly Sins, which, which takes place in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, and it's oh, wow. an opera in English. Yeah, very unique ex- very unique thing it is i mean the, the cut to i've seen only a handful of operas and they've all been in italian though i know there is a trend to move away from that because there is no steadfast rule that an opera has to be in italian um mm-hmm. it's this arbitrary language that they've decided oh this is opera yes um, this is the language of opera this is the language of opera and mozart was the person <sighs> who did actually write operas in german he was one of the guys who said why does it have to be in italian um can't we just 
do it in German. And that is why it became accessible, opera suddenly became accessible for a brief time to the common people, which is why you get the whole thing with Simon Kello coming in and go, I want to perform your opera. And it's this sleazy, filled with uh, dwarfs, horses on stage, extrava, um, very brutish ex- extravaganza of one of his operas. Yeah, it's um, like it's for the people. It's for the people. And, but they do it in the language that is for the people as well. And it's, it kind of shows what is, um, what, which art form are designated for which section of the population, which is why I love the fact that they keep making uh, Mozart a pop star and a rock star is because rock and roll is for everyone. I mean, yes, it has a turbulent history. It has been um, taken off certain people and given to other people, i.e. Elvis, but um, who appropriated a lot of kind of what rhythm and blues was. But Mm -hmm. essentially rock and roll has become something for everyone. Now it's for classic, now it's for classic rock dads. But um, growing up, when we were growing up in sort of the 90s and 80s, rock music was for everyone. And that's kind of what this movie is. It's showing, it makes classical music really accessible for everyone because you're watching it and it's using Mozart's music and his operas and um, everything else. But it's making you go, oh, I can like this music. This music isn't as as in difficult to understand as I might have thought it was when I was a kid mm-hmm. or if it was stuffy and old-fashioned it's lively it's extravagant it's everything you want in music it just happened to be written 300 years ago but it's yeah. still on my level um which I would have thought oh the music I like is when I was like between 13 and 21 which is a whole bunch of um there's a lot of Nirvana um and <laughs> And it's um, all the music, the punk, like Bubble Underground and the Stooges and the Ramones when I first discovered when I was like 17, 18. But of course, it brings it down to that level. And when it brings it down to that level, I'm like, oh, I can like Mozart. I can re- I can go off that and go, actually, you know what? I'm more Beethoven. I like Beethoven more. But it's kind of, yeah, it makes it accessible to you. And I love how this movie does that. I mean, I think the soundtrack and Mozart came back in a big, bad way in the 80s. Um, so Larry had a resurgence in his music. People were like going, oh, I can listen to classical music. It's fine. Yeah. Um, uh, going back to uh, what we were saying about uh, Salieri just and being what the bastard he is portrayed in this movie. And I want to like go on record like this isn't like attacking the true historical figure of Salieri because like we said, this is him telling this story when he had gone mad. So yes, most likely this none of this was true. But um with all these like sleazy things he's doing one of like the moment that you realize like how far down he's gone is because through like the first 40 40 minutes to an hour of the movie he's this he's claiming he's this good godly christian man and then the moment he realizes he can't have what mozart has he turns his back he puts the crucifix in the fire yes he does he says, because you are unfair i turned my back on you and and if you like look at that so from sort of like a religious point of view, it's like one of the big mistakes this guy's making is like he's decided he knows better than the Almighty. <laughs> he does. It's it's a very re- weirdly religious movie, not in the sense that it's a faith based movie. No, and but it's a movie. Enjoy it. Yeah, it's not sort of, but it's this weird thing of about a man's relationship to God but realizing he's not getting out of the relationship he wants. It's this very, it's mm-hmm. a person about a personal relationship with faith as much as it is about a personal relationship with art, about it, that they're on the same level almost. 
Um, yeah. And that's all from Salilari. I mean, when you look at Mozart, he's not giving, he's not a religious person. He's not a spiritual no. person. He is just in the moment kind of person. Um, he's temperamental. He's, um, he's, he's got his own issues. I mean, he's just as problematic in a lot of ways as Salilari when you're looking at what they do in the movie. Oh, yeah. But with Salilari, since his personal relationship to faith and to his God is so strong and he thinks that God gave him his talent and when he realizes he didn't, I think that's when it breaks him because you can see, oh, no, you've given it to Mozart. I had to work Mm -hmm. for this shit. I had to actually make my way up in the world. Mozart is doing the exact same thing, but you've decided to favor this man who is everything I detest in life. You give him Mm -hmm. that talent. This vulgar creature. This vulgar creature. You've decided to deign him with this God-given talent that you'd never gave to me. I had to work for my talent. And I think there is a, I love the dichotomy of, because there are people, I mean, we just talked about Freddie Mercury who had that thing with performing that I don't think anyone else had. And I don't think anyone else can replicate or work to, he worked hard. Freddie Mercury was no slouch. He worked hard, but he had this thing. Um, And Mozart worked hard, but he had this thing about him that I don't think anyone Mm -hmm. else, that I think you can uh, say even Paul McCartney and John Lennon with their songwriting. Yes, they performed 10, whatever the 10,000 hours, whatever that bollocks thing is that when they were playing, Mm -hmm. but they were better songwriters than they were musicians. Um, They experimented a lot, but that was what their gift was. I mean, Paul McCartney wrote yesterday when he was 24. That's insane. That's like... Mozart writing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star when he was five. It's yeah. Which, by the way, we still sing. This is a song that has lived through. Same with yesterday. It is a song that will live through. There are some things that just happen. Some people just have this thing. Yeah, it's that, that, that X factor. That X factor that you just cannot. This level of genius that you just cannot quite grasp. No matter how hard you love something, how hard you want to work something, and Salilari thinks that is God. That is the promise of faith. Um, and that's why yeah. I think he throws a crucifix in the fire because he suddenly realized, oh, this is random? <gasps> Bullshit. <laughs> right. I'm the one and, who prayed. And- I'm the one who fulfilled my promise. I'm the one that worked my ass off. Um, I'm the one who gave up who, who gave up my chastity to the, achieve this. To achieve this. And then he's the one with the X factor. Screw this. My crucifix goes in the fire. Now I'm going to be, there are no rules in this world anymore. And yeah. it's as underst- and it's so understandable. Like he's petty, he's awful, he's all these things, but that moment is kind of understandable. It's kind of despite like, all of it, you understand he's angry. Yeah, you get the anger. Um, but at the same time, you're like, dude, you're the friggin' composer for the friggin' court of Vienna, of the not just Vienna, of the Habsburg Empire. I mean, this was an empire. Yeah. This wasn't like some small random, they keep sort of saying this is a small, tiny, random kingdom that no one cares about. It wasn't. This was a massive empire. You Mm -hmm. were the head composer for this empire and you defined what was good and what was not good because you had the air of the right people. And Mozart didn't have that. He was constantly struggling uphill because everyone said, you have too many notes. You need to take the notes out. This is too much. Um, Yep, and he backed every word that they said. He'd be like, "Yes, yes, yes, uh, your highness, it's it's too many notes, too many just, notes, just to fuck with him." Um, yeah. I 
I want to say also, I love the scene where you can really see that jealousy first kick in when Salieri writes uh, that little march of entrance for Mozart to come in, and then immediately Mozart makes it better. Yes! Like, without thinking about it. By adding more notes. That's what I love. He just edits. <laughs> no, he does. And you just see the look in his face of, what the... Um, and he's already kind of seen what Mozart is, because I love, I love that scene where he first encounters him. And he's yes. late because he's fooling around with Costanza. Um, and very aggressively, by the way. <laughs> it's very Jesus. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, so, it's, it's, it's not sure how well that, oh, how well that would be viewed today. No. No. I mean, it's a thing that's happened. It's, it's half consensual. I would, mm. anyway, so that's sort of happening. And he, so he's late to go and conduct his piece. And there's this moment where he bows in front of the crowd who love him and he's backsiding the, um, the Cardinal of, of Salzburg. Yeah. And it's such a great moment. So it's already showing him putting the middle finger up to the establishment. And yep. it's sort of, Salilary is <sighs> just looking at this guy going, this guy? <laughs> yeah. And he's listening to the oh. music going, oh my God, this, this piece must be an accident. No one could just write this. This is music of the gods. And... <sighs> He meets this guy because well, this is an accident, and then he walks in again and just makes his little march better. Just oh, if you added these key for things, and Solari is just like going, "What the hell?" <laughs> yeah, and, the, and there's the moment, and there's the moment uh, before that where, um, first of all, I also want to say I love how like yeah, he's he's promised God his chastity. So I I like it's just a little thing they put in there that uh, Salieri's big vice is he loves sweets. Yes. <laughs> like he's always like getting like reaching for sweets and but there's the moment where yeah you see uh uh Costanza and uh Mozart fooling around and uh Salieri is looking at him like oh this guy's such a buffoon and then when Mozart stands up he's like they're playing my music and the look on Salieri's face of realization of that's Mozart <laughs> yes <laughs> just like what um no I Abraham's facial expressions in this movie are spectacular. They are never big and over the top like Mozart, but Mozart is just an array of different facial expressions and that laugh and whatever's kind of move jerky movements. Um, Celery is very still, very quiet, but the looks on his face, especially when he's dealing with Mozart, are so brilliant because you can tell he's trying to hide. He's trying to push everything down, just keep calm but I can't because this man is aggravating me to the point I want to kill him <laughs> yes yes um also oh uh another great moment um uh just showing his anger um and this sort of goes to what you were saying before when we were talking about spinal tap mm. <clears throat> is uh you mentioned just like seeing things just mentioned in pop culture then you go back and you're like oh that's what that was mm. um I remember there was like a family guy joke where Stewie is like playing music and they're like, oh, play Handel, play Bach. Mm. And then Peter's like wearing a black mask. He's like, play Peter Griffin. And then he like <laughs> makes fun of him. And then it cuts to Peter talking to a priest and he's just like, but it wasn't Stewie who was laughing. It was God. And when I finally watched this movie, I'm like, oh, this is where they got that from. Yes, that black mask is used so goddamn effectively. Um, yes. I mean, the fact that it's, I mean, the, when his father comes to visit and he's kind of horrified by how his son is living. And it's like, no, let's go out. Let's go party. So they buy um, carnival masks. 
and the joke where he's looking because it's a two-sided mask one with a smiling face and one with a frown and he's looking at his yes. father and it's a frown he's like oh no my father disapproves he turns around it's a smiley face i'm like oh my father's happy he lifts it up frowny yes. face dad it's just like yes that is perfect. yes <laughs> i love it yes that's such a great like it's such like a great like like first there's a twist but then it's like bait and switch yes and um, it is kind of the two faces, It is, which is always throughout this movie. It is the two faces of Salieri, Mozart, is the two faces of God. Um, and these kind of split personalities, especially Salieri has, like he's trying to put on a face, but he has this other thing. He has this deep-seated resentment. I don't know. It's full of that. And it's just, I think that's all Foreman. I think, because um, it's all the visual touches. It's all the kind of things that a director would, to, uh, take to his movie and it is all just subtly interwoven you can just enjoy it and if you notice it fine if you don't you don't have to because this movie is just completely entertaining on its own a nearly three-hour movie about Mozart should not be this entertaining <laughs> exactly I'm never bored um no. the last thing I gotta the last thing I have to say is just my god that very ending where F. Murray Abraham is just having a great time saying I am the patron saint of mediocrity I absolve you <laughs> so fucking good it is so good because you just sort of realize that he's just realized of like going i am just mediocre i do not matter in the scheme of things and it's again when you point out when he goes when they go when they when he's playing the mozart bit and he goes oh i know that one he's like yeah of course you do it's freaking mozart <laughs> yeah exactly and just um like when he says like for i absolve people of mediocrity i am their patron saint yes it's he's reveling in it and i think um and it's just it's him losing his mind but at the same time it's him just like going yes i am the like uh davis and hubbard being the patron saint of sensible shoes uh f Murray yes. him is the is, is, is the patron saint of mediocrity of me mediocrity yes um yes yeah one thing i do love about this movie and i'm sort of noticing it this time around um and it's just because of the carnival masks and just how everything's shot and the fact that they're in these very gorgeous old period still um uh, almost dilapidated kind of Prague um buildings is this kind of feels like this is a place full of ghosts and I love how you can kind of tell that F. Murray Abraham is still haunted by this it's turned him insane yes. and it's not actually what happened it's his perception of what happened um and mm -hmm. that is driving yep. him insane and he just can't let it go um it is yeah, I kill Mozart is a hell of a thing to, to say. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Quite quite a thing. But um yeah, just and giving into that, it's it's sort of strangely how like he finally gives into how crazy he's become. He sort of like almost enjoys the fact that he's this mediocre person and he can be this patron saint. Yes. He can be for all the lost souls who never quite made it. Even though he technically made it. I mean it's he, he made it quite well. He, 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 made it, he made it handsomely. He made it well, handsomely. He, um, but it's just that kind of thing of you never being okay with who you are, and you're just always comparing yourself. It's the oldest school. It's the oldest thing in the book. Everyone yep. does it. Uh, comparison just, is the thief of joy. Exactly. And I've always sort of said we all want to be Mozart, but we're all really Salieri. And 
I think if we were all cellular, I think that'd be great because we'd be all successful and and at the top of our game and yeah, everyone loving yeah. us. I saw that on your uh, letterbox review of it. Yeah, but I think that's how kind of how we always see <laughs> ourselves as we are all the patron saints of mediocrity <laughs> in a yes. way. Um, we are all never satisfied of what we have and who we are and what we have worked for because um, we're all looking at Mozart going, you son of a bitch. You um, son of a bitch. And you're not realizing that he is just in a massive mess of his own making um yes he never helps he just makes it worse in a lot of ways so i think you can kind of think that he did not help the situation at all like he almost sexually he tried to sexually assault his wife he put a spy mm-hmm. in there he worked the man to death he well he was working him to a point where he most was collapsing um because he couldn't teach so he had to keep making he kept having to create masterpiece after masterpiece because Mozart could only create masterpieces and that's a that takes a toll on a person um yes it does um even if it was kind of a natural thing that he did and I don't know how natural it was in real life but Mm -hmm. this is a man who did burn itself at both candles and did die young um like all the great 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 rock stars (laughs) yep he's he's not quite a member of the 27 club but he was 35 he was 35 he's pretty close I mean I forgot he was that young when he died. I must have convinced him, uh, mixed him up with Beethoven, who was an older man, but who was going deaf, but still could not stop mm-hmm. composing because that is what he did. Um, but yeah, it's it's an incredible movie, an incredible achievement. And this kind of feels, looking at um, the kind of the reading about the Academy Awards, this kind of felt like it was the parasite of that year that everyone knew it was yeah. good but not everyone thought it was going to win the oscars it was like oh yeah where the hearts from has got the silly feel it's the depression era it's really good and killing fields is a war movie that actually was kind of surprised how quickly they made the killing fields because Camille rouge was only like six years beforehand but you know yeah. that's a that kind of big thing sam waterson gives a really great performance and but yeah there is this really great movie that is amadeus and it was a hit it made money the soundtrack kicked ass because it's Mozart um but I think it was kind of a big surprise when that's the movie that won and I'm like no the, the Academy made the right choice if it was that well earned well earned and if it was um the Sully uh Field movie where that home where the heart is or whatever it's called everyone was just like oh that's the movie that won 1984 have a look at that yeah I mean this is a genre defining yeah and I'm kind of glad that a musical won it was well, not really it is a musical, but it's not a musical. But I'm glad that movie won because right. I think it represents 1984 better in general. Yeah. 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 I, yeah, I I can't say enough good things about Amadeus. It's in my top five favorite movies of all time. So it's just, it's it's one of those movies. Like, uh, like I said, I think when we first talked, uh, Casablanca, it's like there's nothing I would change about this. No, and it's a three-hour movie. I mean, Casablanca is also another perfect movie. <coughs> Sorry, that I wouldn't change. And there's nothing I would change in this. And this is the director's cut. This is the almost three-hour movie, but I wouldn't change a single beat. I think it's a movie that needs to be this long because I think you need to settle into the time period, the costuming, the, the relationship between Salilary and Mozart. Um, and I love the fact that the director's cut sounds like it puts more Elizabeth Barrage in there because I think she's needed um, as much in that that's a specific kind of three-way actor kind of thing that's happening. Um, yeah. You need to be settled in and kind of live this life of Mozart 
And I love the fact that it's not all true. It's this kind of mixture of fact and fiction. Um, yes, he did put on the marriage of Figaro. Yes, he kind of made it a much more about sex than the French play that um, helped stir up feelings for the revolution um, or for his thought mm-hmm. to. Um, he was a revolutionary artist and not everyone got him because he had too many notes. Um, but yeah, I think it melds it in such a way that I think Milos Forman is one of the great directors. And I don't think he gets that credit, even though um, he made this over flight of the one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Um, he, mm-hmm. I haven't seen any of his Czech things, but I'm dying to. I know I can get a few from Arrow. Um, but yeah, he made Man on the Moon. Um, which is an amazing biography about Andy Kaufman. Again, another yep. insane person. Um, yeah, just he clearly had something for uh, for these yeah, crazy artists. For these crazy stuff, even people versus Larry Flint, which is yeah. the ultimate thing about censorship. And Larry Flint was a sleazy man. This this is not a guy you mm. want to be in the same room with. Um, right. But he was a very important court case in terms of free speech and nudity and sex and all that kind of thing so yeah he was able to take these characters even uh, cuckoo's nest with uh jack nicholson's character again a really sleazy guy but cause who could cause absolute chaos in a place where you could argue chaos should not be especially what happens in that movie but he's he's really he's a millish woman good director <laughs> Oh yeah, hot take. Hot take. Um, <laughs> no, I think, but I think he's one of those directors that his body work should be looked at as well. And I think it's only a couple of movies, mm-hmm. but I think this guy, um, yeah, hot take. Good director. <laughs> <laughs> um, and with that, I guess I could probably talk about uh, Amadeus for another three hours, but I won't keep you because it's getting late over where you are. Um, before we, thank you so much for coming on with this double because this was I enjoyed watching this uh, double so much. Yeah, I I enjoy both I, both great films, and uh, I always enjoy chatting with you, Lindsay. Me too, and I can't wait to get you on again um, at some point. Maybe we'll talk Rocky. Maybe we'll talk Edward Scissorhands. Who knows? Um, I'll yeah, we'll see. Yes, we'll see. I'm just going through the list at this stage. Um, before we go, uh, please tell people where they can find your good work, especially your Film Feast episodes. Uh, yeah, uh, Film Feast, uh, anywhere where you get podcasts, you'll hear me there. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm still not a, a Twitter guy, but yeah, uh, Letterboxd, I'm, I'm starting, yeah, uh, Matt always tells me, I'm, he's like, you're too innocent for this world, Jen. Um, <laughs> yeah. but I'm actually starting to get more into, uh, Letterboxd. I wasn't writing reviews for a while, but, uh, yeah, Elwood Balboa 92, or you can probably just find me, I'll be Kenneth Walker. Um, and that's where you can find me. No, please give him a follow. I do like your letterbox a lot. Sorry, I'm going to go back and read your views since you're, you're reviewing again. <coughs> that sounds absolutely great. Um, thank you for listening to Schlock and Awe. Um, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Schlock and Awe One. Um, or if you want to follow me, it's Reading Geek on Twitter or on Letterboxd. Um, as thank you so much for coming on. This is a brilliant double. Um, yeah, I might have to watch Amadeus again, actually, because I think I think I will enjoy it more um, after talking about it. Um, yes, and that will be back with another double feature next time. All right, thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.